All right, folks, take your seats. It is a big one today. This one, you know, we we couldn't tackle this one until we had some some pods under our belt and could really do this thing justice as far as providing the the entire story behind this guy we're going to talk about today. And we spent the last week of research being depressed about all this shit. No matter how much you think about and I'm just going to drop it right now. We're doing Hitler. I'm sure you guys read the, uh, the yeah, title there you of the go. episode. This is, should not come as a surprise <laughs> if you clicked on this. Ah, surprise. But there's, man, I, I mean, we're going to know where to start on this one. Oh, yeah. And before we get into it, the man on my left. <laughs> I thought you forgot. <laughs> no, of course I didn't. This man is going to be the future recipient of three Michelin stars for marijuana slash historically based podcasts. Just wait. We'll keep you updated when he gets that first star. This guy's been edging himself with an educational hard-on, an educational erection for the past week. And if you all just sit back and relax, we're just going to blow a wad of information all over you. And it's so crazy when you actually put the whole story together about how much recent history has echoed a lot of this and how you can see tactics, strategies, things used during... Hitler's rise to power that certain people, this isn't a political <coughs> podcast, but it's going to be real easy to tie certain comparisons to certain recent events and certain people's tactics. Yeah, we're not going to mention them, but uh, maybe just listen to the things that we're saying and just kind of think back to a certain amount of years, but really in the whole, as a whole, since Hitler was kind of swept into power, it feels like a lot of the political discourse that happens in this country as far as campaigning and things like that feels like they took a couple pages out of the H man's book. Because some people took more pages. Yeah. <laughs> some people took the whole goddamn some book. Some people took all the, all the goddamn pages, but uh, just a, an odd influence that this guy had on something that we deal with. It was cool when we used to have to deal with it just in election years, yeah. but now that it seems like election years are Every like the, year. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, we're going to be talking about some deep stuff. We're going to try to make it fun. Uh, the biggest issue that we've had kind of in planning this was trying to figure out how we were going to give it to you. So Professor Chris and I acted like men. We pulled our shirts off. We oiled each other up. And then we had a good old wrestling we, match. We uh, hashed it out. Professor Chris uh, Professor Chris got me with a bionic elbow. He ended up winning. So uh, towards the end of the episode, we'll kind of talk about where we're going to be headed later. But... Let's jump into Hitler. The, the biggest thing I took away from this is that I, he didn't have a middle name. Yeah, not not just that. <laughs> there are a few things. The fact that this is such a slow buildup, while at the same time not being a slow buildup, like the you know casual you know casual World War II enthusiasts or things like that, 
it kind of seems like, especially here in the States, how we learn about World War II is we they really gloss over like how it started and what led up to it. It's just like, this is what happened once the USA got involved. And I think that's kind of, I don't know, if, I seriously doubt that's how other countries learn about this. European countries learn about the entire thing. Yeah, well, they were, and we're not the main character. We Hemingway ourselves. <clears throat> yeah. To, to touch back myself. to a previous episode, if we're the main character in every story and how we teach stuff. So, well, it's also hard for America to start to really say things that happened before we entered World War II because there wasn't a lot of condemnation from a lot of major figures in America for Hitler. That's true. <laughs> so maybe we Up don't want to... Up until a certain point, a lot of... It was just... This is an entire thing of people just sitting on their hands. Yeah, well, even that, but like uh, Ford. Yeah. Big... Henry Ford. Yeah, Henry Ford. Not a big Hitler guy, but maybe like a cool with Hitler guy. I'm, I'm sure there were some people that... Especially during this time when it's not the age of information like we're so used to now where something happens and your phone fucking goes off in your pocket and you know about it going on across the entire country or on the other side of the world. This is at a time when information coming out of some place is, you know, um, what do you call it? The reporters that are like international. Uh, Foreign correspondents. Foreign correspondents getting information out and even then only being able to get out what information they can get out because if they're trying to call out and report information from inside Germany while this whole buildup is happening, none of that information is getting out, especially during the later portions of Hitler's power where he was controlling everything. So before we get to that, though, let's let's go back to the beginning because that's where it all all takes place is essentially the buildup to what this guy is going to go on to fucking do and all the atrocities he's going to commit. Yeah, and I don't feel like we have to do this in the beginning, but to kind of know Hitler is to have to really paint a young picture, and there's definitely some stuff in his childhood that probably did suck, but we just all have to remember that just because you... A lot of people have shitty childhoods. Yeah, exactly. No one else has turned out to be Hitler. They didn't go on to kill six million people just in... In concentration camps. Like, it's just, it's one of those six things million, where... Six million Jews in the concentration camp. That's not yeah. considering all of the other all central political dissidents and enemies of the state and everything. Undesirable people, what they considered. So a lot of the shit that we're going to go over in his childhood sounds like it sucks. We're not on Hitler's side. We're not trying to justify anything that he did because, like Chris said, everybody has a rough childhood. There's people that had a lot rougher childhoods than Hitler that didn't go on to do evil things. So it's just a, a full ideation almost of just the information so adolf was born april 20th 1889 right about you know right before the turn of the century just tried to ruin this day before it really got started Mm -hmm. 420 we're taking 420 back is what we're doing that's that's we're 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 trying we're trying our best (laughs) but he was born in a place called Braunau in uh what was austria hungary at the time that was close to the german border what would be considered german proper and i didn't realize this but you know, I love me some maps and scale and everything like that. Looking at Germany and the size of Germany, not not that big, dude. Um, Germany was about a, a little smaller than Texas. Really? I figured it would have been like Mississippi-sized, no. honestly, kind of with the way that it looks. Nope, just a little smaller than Texas. So huh. w- the reason I'm mentioning this, too, is when you think about <laughs> the the area of what he's trying to control, what he's trying to take over, the, you know, 
a, a larger country would be harder to create a movement win because you have so much larger landmass, more people to reach. So that's why I'm kind of setting the stage of like Germany at this point is is a little smaller than Texas. And that's going to kind of lead into how he's able to get everywhere to go on these like fucking tours and all this type of shit. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself more so when he gets into politics and everything. Yeah. Uh, just at a young age, everything seems to be just a little bit odd for Hitler. Uh, Clara, his mother, I believe was 16 when she met his 30, I think he was 34 year old. I think 40. Was he 40? I want to say 40. 40 year old, potentially, uh, father Alois. He was the fourth of six children, three of which were from Alois's first wife because he's 40. So he definitely already had a first one. Um, fourth of six, three of them died like very, very young, I think too. Um, he had a brother that I believe died of smallpox. Well, how did Aloise and Clara meet? Uh, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot that de- right now. Yeah, Let's there's going to be a lot debated in history. Um, before we get to how they met, we can talk about Aloise's childhood and the fact that he actually never met his father, and his father's um, name was never filled out on the birth certificate. And Hitler is actually in ideation, or like a, I don't know, that's the second time I've used ideation in the first five minutes. That's a bad sign for that word. But like a conglomerate of um, Alois's mother's last name mm-hmm. and stepfather's name. And that's how Hitler came to be, is okay. their last name. So there's some question with that, that um, Alois's mother may have been working for a Jewish family. Like it's a housekeeper, right? Yeah. Yep. So potentially there could have been something going on there where the father of the house, a Jewish man, ended up hooking up with... We have ourselves a Schwarzenegger <laughs> Hispanic maid situation. Yeah. Big Schwarzenegger situation that, I, I mean, I can't say for sure, but I would really like to... I don't know if I'd like to believe that Hitler spent his whole entire life hating a quarter of himself. It would, I don't think a lot of his ideas initially weren't his, so I mean... True, but just to know that there's a chance that Hitler could have been 25% Jewish and still kind mm-hmm. of the bad person that he was almost makes it worse. Yeah. Actually. But well, yeah, how did how did Clara and Alois meet? Yeah, word is that they were cousins. <laughs> I'm not just saying that as like, Boom! but no, but seriously, like there has been historians and everything that have traced back the family trees and it's possible that they kind of... Some branches might have come together. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, and the other thing, too, his mother referred to Alois as uncle. That, yeah, that, that was So, I mean, if, I'm not a genealogist or whatever mm-hmm. it takes, but if you're referring to your husband as uncle, chances are there might have been some familiar relations going on there. And we're going to refer back to what we said before. Uh, a lot of people have had their cousins fuck and create them. Never ended up doing what he did. Exactly. So. Still, still not in this, still, still no excuses coming out of this camp. One hundred percent on Hitler's shoulders. So when he's three years old, they moved to pass out Germany, and well, they actually learned their English though in that lower Bavarian area, mm-hmm. and that's why Hitler has such er, not English. They're German. They're, yeah, yeah, he has the Bavarian dialect. That's what I was saying. So in Passau, that where they were living, it was an area where they spoke Bavarian. So he ended up, that's where he got his Bavarian dialect. I thought part of it was even where they were in Austria, they were so close to the border that it was sort of the same. It, it might have been. I'm not sure exactly what every every territory or whatever it was spoke as far as their dialect. Um, not a good student in school. 
for now. <laughs> <laughs> for for now, I guess. And he kind of gets his. There's different factions of like German nationalism and everything. And he starts to kind of not at like a super young age, but like around the time, I think what he's 13, 14, 15, he starts to kind of hear rumblings in the position of German nationalists. Um, Cause at that point you had Germany who was run by the Kaiser Kaiser Wilhelm. Yes. Kaiser Wilhelm. And then you had Austria, Hungary that was um, ruled by the Habsburgs. Came down from, I believe, was it the Catholic or Holy Roman Army? Yeah, is that the area like that. that they kind of developed out of? Yeah, because so that was the first Reich was the Holy Roman Army. The second Reich was going to be the Kaisers, and then the third Reich was yeah the Nazis, something like that. So you have the Habsburg monarchy, and basically, due to his feeling of nationalism, he felt that like all of these German speaking areas and everything should be, you know, purely German. And he hated the Habsburg monarchy because they essentially established what would be, I'm, I'm not sure welcoming is the right term, but a tolerant ethnic empire. And he saw all these other ethnicities as essentially just being less than the, the Germanic people. And you get these, he was really into like the Germanic folk- folklore and everything that they had come, you know, the Germanic people had come from the pure-blooded, um, well, what's going to be the Aryan stock, but basically the Nordic stock. Mm-hmm. That's where you get the blonde-haired, blue eyes. You you know, if you've ever seen, of course, a fucking picture of Hitler, you're like, why was he pushing fucking blonde-haired, blue eyes so much when that was like him and his entire side from like Goering and a couple other guys, it was just like... Black hair, fucking brown eyes. They were just the exact opposite of what this pure, pure blooded race should be. Exactly, but that was kind of part of his growing up was kind of on the folklore of like this superior Germanic people, and so he he developed this sense of hatred toward people that weren't that pretty pretty early on. And part of what we need to establish is there's like two childhoods of Hitler. There is the actual childhood of Hitler, and then there is the made-up fairy tale land childhood of Hitler that he actually wrote himself in Mein Kampf. Yes. He wrote Mein Kampf when he was in Landsberg Castle, prison, whatever you call it. We'll get to that. But it was almost like a rewriting and a reshaping of his history. So he wrote in his own Mein Kampf that he grew up very poor. Kind of counter to actually what it was, because Alois was a customs bureau agent that worked that border between Austria mm-hmm. and Germany. Made pretty good money. Yeah. Not a uh, not a, a rich family, but sort of a middle class. More well to do than a lot of yes. a lot of oh, German yeah. citizens. And that's one of the things is like a lot of this, if it was just coming off of the information that Hitler would have allowed to come out, it would be nothing but what was in Mein Kampf and what he allowed to come out. This information came about despite him trying to basically destroy all mm-hmm. records that would link him to this, there was still channels of information and people that they were able to interview, you know, during the Nuremberg trials to get additional information that came forward about basically him as a, a younger man. So that's how we kind of know this information. Yeah. There's a lot of roommates that he had had, um, when he moves into, or when he moves to Germany after kind of how his family shakes out, but it's it, the, Extent that he went to try to erase his own history so mm-hmm. nobody could have that, oh, but what about this moment? Exactly. It's pretty crazy. The, the fact that he just felt that he could erase his own past in order to create this character that's sort of like all his own is a wild move to be able to do. But he didn't do that bad of a job of it. <laughs> about recreating yeah. all this stuff and hiding. Oh, yeah. Sweeping everything else under the rug. 
So when he's 14, his dad ends up dying. And well, his dad, we got to talk about their relationship because I believe that it was almost like uh, Alois was very, very hard on Hitler. They moved a lot being these border agents. They mm. were bouncing back and forth. They finally had moved back to Austria and he had retired and tried to be a farmer. Basically, Alois had. Yeah. So now that he's retired and has this pension and everything, which will be important later on, he's just trying to turn Hitler into what he wanted him to be. He wants him to be another one. He wants him to be exactly like his father. And his father would beat the holy hell out of him, where his mother would always try to pull him away. And as that would happen, it would just get worse and worse and worse. Then his brother ends up dying of smallpox, and Hitler just becomes fucking a terror. He's lashing out at everybody. He hates that his dad beats him. He's sad about his brother. Like, as a kid, things were going pretty south for him. And he ends up begging his dad to go to, like, art school, mm-hmm. basically. And he sends him to a place called Real School, <laughs> which feels like real school. Real school, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was sort of a system where... It was a a fairly normal school that he would go to, Mm -hmm. but the kids that did poorly in that school went on to lower trades. The kids that did better in that school were able to pass into a different kind of schooling. Hmm. So it was almost like a sorting school to where if Hitler was going to be real shitty, it was going to end up real bad for Mm -hmm. him. If he was going to be smart, everything was going to kind of start working in a direction towards like career-oriented shit. Gotcha. Unfortunately, like you said earlier, Hitler wasn't a very good student until... The day that you were about to talk about. So, yeah. So his father dies when he's 14. And <laughs> at, at that point, he, he kind of begins to improve. Um, and I don't know if it's so much an, him improving as just like being able to like, I don't know, focus on school. Or if he was determined that now that his father's dead and everything, he has to make something of himself. I think he got the dad monkey off his back. I think, think he got the guy that used to beat him and torture him as a kid and make him hate everything. And by all accounts, his mom was a very religious woman. And maybe it was accompanying her to church more where he kind of started to get sort of a sense of like God and how the world sort of works in a religion. And he might've used a little bit of that later on, but he really started improving in school and being a decent kid because he finally got the guy that beat him, you know, off his back. Mm -hmm. So in 1907, he tries to, he convinces his mom to basically let him go to uh, art school or go attempt to, to go to art school. So he moves to Vienna and he ends up trying to get into Vienna. What is it? The fine arts Academy Academy of fine arts, Vienna, which real creative name. So he ends up getting rejected twice. First time he makes it through to like the second round of, I guess, interviews to get in. And then the next time he applies, they didn't even get him past the opening round. Well, and he was so bad that they were actually like, hey, man, you're not really made for art. But I think there could be a future in architecture for you. Yeah. Which it's cool, I guess, maybe that they're pushing him in another direction. Unfortunately, they push him in a direction. They were tired of him fucking coming back. They didn't want him <laughs> coming back a third time. They're like, hey, dude, like, why don't you go over here and fail out of this place. Third time won't be the charm for you. And it's not like he gets into the architecture school either. He goes over there and they said he didn't have the proper schooling because <laughs> he did so shitty in his previous schooling that he couldn't be an art or an architect, architecture artist or architect. I think just an architect, which I assume is a lot of math that he probably wasn't. That's what I'm at. saying. It's not just drawing <laughs> a picture of the building you want to build. It's being able to make it structurally buildable, which is awesome to come out of the Academy of Fine Arts. Cause it's just like, 
You can draw a building. Maybe you can calculate a building. I mean, that might be your best bet. You're dog shit here. Mm-hmm. How do you fail getting into an art school, too? Are you just that bad of an artist? I don't know. I mean, it's the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. I'm sure it's a pretty prestigious school. He was art. He wasn't fine art yet? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, in December um, uh what is it, 1907? Yeah, 21st. He has some really weird events that all sort of culminate around each other. So uh, his mother ends up dying of cancer, uh, basically leave him orphaned at the age of 16. And basically he's able to, at that point, live off of like his father's military. I don't even know if it was military pension or like what it was pensioned from. I believe it would have been the government pension for being a border agent. Okay. Which so- the way that would work would be his mother would get that pension. When she dies, he gets a portion of what his mother got. So okay. it's kind of like incremental steps down as you pass it continually. And at this point, like he, this isn't like a wealth of money or no. anything like that. But basically it's enough to support what he is considered like, I guess his Bohemian period where he's just kind of like traveling around, um, not outside of like Austria or Vienna or not, sorry, Austria. Um, this entire time he's in Austria, he considers himself German for oh, his yeah. entire life. He's considered himself to be yeah. a, a German, not, not an Austrian. And that's going to, you know, that type of like nationalism is really going to come into play and shape him as he's older. But yeah, so he's just pretty much two years. He was living on the land. He was living a decent life. He was I li- think. Well, he was living in like what they considered, they say homeless, but when they mean homeless, he just didn't have a permanent residence. He was living in like, I don't know what they would consider boarding houses where you would kind of get your own bed and you had access to like a roof to sleep under and stuff like that. Yeah, and I would assume more like, like a yeah. hostel. Yeah, something like that. But those places during that time, he could I don't have been think actually were actually homeless. Yeah, well, but like know. the way he describes it, I think in mind confident everything. Like he's just focusing on. Well, it's called fucking my struggle. Yeah, and so he really, I think, plays up essentially what he was doing during this period. Gives us a good good bit of information with my struggle as to how this story is going to go. But while he's there in Vienna, he also is kind of you know traveling around, and Vienna is. Uh, a place where there's kind of a hotbed of like anti-Semitism, which is prevalent all around Europe at this point and everything. And you said that that stems from, you just told me it kind of stems from just the religious reasons of it, that essentially it's a huge belief in Europe that the Jewish people are responsible for essentially the death of Jesus. And there's still just that persecution because of that. Yeah. I didn't even really realize it till I had to do a little bit of a dive because it just, seems like everywhere in Europe, anti-Semitism is pretty rampant. And that's really sort of between being the people that traded Jesus to death. Uh, Martin Luther, the guy that created the Lutheran church, would try to recruit Jewish people away from their temples to come be Lutherans. And they, the Jewish faith, I think, is pretty well tight-knit. I, I don't think that there's a lot of defectors from it too mm-hmm. much. And so as soon as he would turn them down, or as soon as they would turn him down, he would immediately start bad-mouthing them. He made them kind of the enemy of the Lutheran Church, which then spread throughout Christianity much the same way that the Jesus story would. And these places had all been conquered by religion, basically, at that point, mm-hmm. to where these myths had already spread enough yeah. to where things weren't great. I'm sure... Um, because they were probably taken... Re- re- like, these religious stories are being held as fact, yeah. still at this time in the world in certain places. And uh, quote me if I'm wrong here, Israel's not a place yet? I'm not sure. We'll have to figure that out one day. 
So while he's here, he's also starts reading like nationalist literature. Um, there's a lot of like like little smaller papers that'll come out with a bunch of anti-Semitic shit and like race baiting type type stuff. And he basically just kind of dives into this and starts kind of believing in this message. Now whether it's based upon stuff as a German nationalist, he's just grown up already believing. But now he's like, oh, now there's other people that share my, you know, these horrible fucking ideas. Everybody seems to like this too. Yeah, exactly. And so leading up to this, we get to. August of uh, 1914. Uh, Declaration of Independence of Israel was 1948 out of British Palestine. Yep, so definitely not not at this time. Crazy. So we come to the kickoff and start of World War One. Yeah, well, and even before that, his existence was based around still that same love of drawing. He was just basically living on money that he was making doing watercolor pictures of all the mm-hmm. Viennese like architecture and shit. So he sort of loved the architecture there, but he was still trying to be this artist. And it, I mean, getting your dreams stomped on by multiple people, is that really something that would turn somebody into a psychopath? No, it's happened to s- how many people have had their fucking dreams crushed yeah. or had to pivot in life or anything like that again. Not an excuse. No, it's just, it's so crazy to me that the guy that had so much bad inside of him was just yearning to do something that can be so beautiful. Like you say, where they were traveling around where he was in Vienna, there was kind of an art scene Mm -hmm. and he wanted to be a part of that. Like he started out with the intentions of wanting to be good and pure and an artist and that kind of shit. And then just pulled a complete 180 and headed the other direction. Pure, pure might be. Well, well, as pure as he could get. That Yeah, it did to him anyway. As pure as you can get when your cousins produced you. That's true. So he ends up, and prior to uh, World War One kicking off in August of 1914, he ends up moving to Munich in May 1913, basically using his father's like final estate or pension payment. And because there was already kind of rumblings about conflict and everything, he didn't want to be conscripted into the Austrian army. He wasn't going to no. fight. No, those he, aren't his he, people. Yeah, he hated the Habsburgs. He wasn't, wasn't going to fight for them. So I'm wondering if he tried to move there. So if he was going to get conscripted, he assumed that he would just get conscripted there in Germany and be able to fight for like the German Empire or whatever they considered at that point. I think he moved to Germany to try to avoid being caught to be brought into the Austrian army. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, that's what I'm saying to avoid conscription. Yeah. Right. I don't think that he was just figured that maybe they would think that he was, or that he could get into the German army, which somehow still blows me away that it happened. And maybe they just needed everybody at the time, mm-hmm. but yeah, he, he ran away to Austria. They actually found him in Aus or ran away to Germany. They found him in Germany. They, and bring him all the way back to Austria, and he fails the physical, which probably was more of a sign of they knew that he just really didn't want to be a part of the Austrian yeah. army, that they're like, fuck it, we'll just give this guy a pass. Yeah. Because if you can't pass that physical, but you can get into the German army very soon mm-hmm. after, like, gotta be something there. That or if he fucking said something, like, I'm not sure this guy's gonna legitimately fight for us. Like, this guy could just bolt or cause some fucking shit to happen like that's not beneficial for us so it's better if we just kind of keep him away from the army do you think the german army or the austrian army had a rule that you had to have both of your testicles visible and then the german army was only one and and that's what it was depending on how desperate for troops i don't know (laughs) it's a little teaser for some information we'll get like we had to draft all the one testicle people (laughs) we're getting we're getting desperate but yeah, so, but anyway, he, you know, after the outbreak of World War One, he's able to list in the Bavarian army, even though he wasn't even a German citizen. 
Yeah, they, they said that it could have just been a, a clerical error, a paperwork issue where they didn't check the the T's and, you know, make sure the I's were dotted and all I'm that I'm guessing shit. they were just pulling in anybody. Could have been. They, someone Absolutely. comes in there and is like, I want to fight for the Bavarian army. They're like, fuck it, sure. They're not offering him Bavarian and German citizenship. Yeah. He's just going to be fighting for them. Yeah, and they, I mean, again, the same thing that we were talking about earlier with the childhood in Mein Kampf. He's sent to the Bavarian, uh, wow, Bavarian Reserve Infantry and he became a messenger. So in Mein Kampf, he's at the front lines. He's the, mm-hmm. the first line of defense. He's the one that's out there battling it out. He's, he's in the trenches. He's, yeah, in the trenches. He's making this shit happen. He's he's on the uh, eastern front or western front? I believe it was the eastern. Okay. No, no, no. He's on the western front. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a dispatch runner on the western front. So where France and Belgium are. And here's the thing. Because he's a messenger, he's just going back and forth between, like, command posts to generals, like, to relay messages. So half the time, he's way behind the front line, like, at HQ, waiting to get a message. Then he's going out to the position that's back from the front line where all the commanders are to pass those messages. So he's not having to go up to the front. It's still kind of one of those things where it sounds like it's a job that's sort of lax, but you are still running into an active war zone. I mean, that's that's something I, I where you can that. say... I'm making the comparison. I'm not saying that, like, he didn't, like, serve. I'm just saying the way that it's built up in yeah, my oh, conf yeah. of how yeah. he paints it, of being a frontline soldier and all this shit, it's, it's fake. Well, and the guys at the front line would always, like, poke fun at him because in his off time, he would be doing paintings. Like, he would be drawing shit all the time. Mm-hmm. And they had some name for him. It was, like, the swine of the behind or something, something like that. Something pig or something yeah, like that. Yeah, because he was literally, like, the last line of defense as a messenger. So almost, luckily, maybe they didn't give him a rifle because that probably could have ended up bad. But I guess if he was on his own home team or felt like it was his home team, maybe he wouldn't have gone nuts. Well, in, well, I think October of 1916, he is in a position, I don't know where he's at, but I'm assuming mortar shells and stuff can get way back from the front lines. He's actually wounded in the thigh by shrapnel from like a, a shell. And it was the Battle of the Somme, which I think was a fairly big battle in World War One, maybe. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was not a skirmish and it was an actual like recorded battle was probably some pretty decent fighting. Yeah. And he's able to recover and then return um, back to the field in March 1917. Pretty fast. Pretty quick. And I'm also guessing that because he was coming back from a hospital, he probably took even more shit. Yeah. And everything like that. Again, I'm not saying this in a sense that this guy does not deserve everything that he fucking got in life and everything. Um, But he was actually recommended for the (laughs) Iron Cross, and he received the Iron Cross. And in a fucking crazy turn of events, it was his fucking... Uh, Jewish superior officer Hugo, uh, is it Gutman? Gutman? Gutman, I believe. Gutman that actually recommends him and puts him in for the Iron Cross. That's interesting, isn't it? A tool that will he, he will use and wear to to his advantage at very opportune times. It was given to him upon the recommendation of a Jewish man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe I'm not positive on the statistics, but I think the uh, World War One. German army was made up of roughly like 15% Jewish. 18. 18? Yeah, it was uh, compared to the population of how many Jewish people were like in the German military, it was they were disproportionately larger. Yeah. So more more per their population served. And they were decorated too. There were a ton of them that were decorated that fought for what they considered the fatherland. And hey, 
maybe we cut them a little slack because they're out there trying to protect the area that you consider not theirs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just a a weird thought process to know and to serve with that many Jewish people and not put it together and be like, hey, maybe these guys aren't so bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you got that shit already in your mind and you're building yeah. off that. And especially, you know, who's to say what his thought was at this exact time, but it's gonna take it's gonna take a, a dark turn here very, very quickly. Yeah. So with the end of World War One, we're not going to go ahead and, and go into that a lot. But essentially, what ended up happening at the end of World War One is the German Austrian. I can't remember who else was with them during that that time. Basically, the commanders of that were a few generals, and part of you know military knowledge is they determined that essentially they weren't in a position to win the war. Unwinnable war. At it that was point. it was an unwinnable war. They determined this. They started the shit. They went and stirred a bunch of other shit up, mm-hmm. and then they realized that it just wasn't for them. Yep. So they decided to pull back. But you can't do that when you're a brave Germanic people that never says die, right? Not only that, is World War One was not fought on what was considered German home soil at that point. So just to kind of paint a picture, you basically, and again, not the age of information, information travels very slowly and common people get their information through just a few forms of media. So the entire time fighting during World War One, the German people are being told, well, no one's fighting here in Germany, so we're doing great. We're keeping them off of our home territory. We're winning battle after battle. It's all the propaganda coming in to keep public support up. So you have this entire German populace is like, we're doing great. There was talk of like, we're this close to winning. We're this close to winning. And then all of a sudden, the next thing they hear is like, oh, by the way, we're surrendering. Oh, an armistice. We're yes, calling we're, for basically a ceasefire. Exactly. We're, we're signing an armistice. And to them, they're like, why are we signing an armistice? Like we've, I think they lost 15% of their troops, which, you know, it's a ton of people, but it's not a large, large portion of it. So they're no. sitting here thinking, so hold on a second. We're winning battles. Our home territory hasn't been invaded or destroyed or anything like that, but somehow we're losing this thing? <coughs> well, and they covered their ass in a deviously brilliant way by essentially everybody that was in power of the war machine and of the country. It was a ton of generals. Yeah. The generals a- that were the ones responsible that people were turning to me and like, how are we fucking losing? And they had to basically come up with an excuse as to how they actually were forced to sign the armistice. Yeah, so they all basically just stepped down out of their post, and the people that actually signed the armistice and the Treaty of Versailles was the new governmental group that they called the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic. Weimar Republic. I always forget the W's or V's. Mm-hmm. So you have the Treaty of Versailles, which basically, kind of in, in short terms, part of it was, and one of the biggest parts, were that the signature signing the... Treaty of Versailles, the German or German Empire, whatever, whoever started the war, they basically acknowledged that they started the war, that they were the sole reason for the start of the war. And by being the sole reason for the start of the war, they were then responsible for all of the financial reparations that were going to be, you know, passed down by the, were they, they weren't the allies at that point. What was the, um, coalition? I, I don't know if it was coalition or what it was, but I'm just going to say allies because it was the allied countries against essentially the German Empire, German Republic, Austrian Republic as well. Yeah, France, England. Um, the Ottoman Empire, well, whoever it was. Like, that's what they consider themselves to in Austria-Hungary is like the Ottoman Empire as well. Yeah, and then we kind of came in again and 
flash our nuts and get a lot mm-hmm. of credit for, excuse me, World War One. So you get this theory that's propagated by all of these, you know, a bunch of these German military commanders, and they're like, well, we didn't lose this in the field. We weren't losing this in battle. So the only reasonable explanation is that this was lost for us at home. And this is where we get the stab in the back theory that was just ran rampant over over Germany at this point. And basically the blame fell squarely on two two groups of people's shoulders. It was the fault of the communists and it was the fault of the Jews. Yeah, because that was just what they had believed was the Weimar Republic was made up of Jewish people that didn't have their back and communism leeching into this country. That- and it was part of a global Jewish a Jewish conspiracy to take over essentially the world and also a separate communist. They weren't like working together. It, it was them working all against the German people. They called it a Judeo Bolshevism, I yes. believe is what the, the Bolsheviks, the major issue was, was Judeo Bolshevism, which is very odd because the Jewish people don't really fall under like communist beliefs. I don't think, I don't think so, <laughs> so it would have been a pretty hard stretch, but it was a cell that for some reason, everybody in Germany and, probably because they all didn't want to believe that they started something that they celebrated in the streets, just like young Hitler did Mm -hmm. to the fact that they had to admit fault in this treaty of Versailles. And then not only that, but the financial ramifications of the treaty of Versailles basically just hamstrung the entire economy that was already struggling getting through a war because of hyperinflation and all sorts of different other shit, were then tasked with trying to pay back, how much was it? I can't remember the exact amount. It, it ends up translating into like hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money. I think it was then, though, too. I it was, think it was, it was like a small, it was, billion. It was, a, it was on the smaller side of the billions. But, I, but it was no, still in the beats. I thought it was three digits, though. It might have been. Don't quote me on that. But, it, yeah. was a, it was a shit ton. Enough so to the fact that they wouldn't be done paying them off on the payment plan that they they set them up on a payment plan it's not like give us all that money now later yeah it, they would be paying it up to like 1984 or 1985 something like that and that was through the dawes act which america had a hand in we'll we'll talk about how the dawes act really did some bad shit so what you also have with the treaty of versailles is you're not only financially you know punishing germany but now what you're saying is that we're not going to let this shit happen again so they put in the leadership that's going to form the Weimar Republic, correct? Mm-hmm. They also then say, well, guess what? Your standing army is now going to be limited to 100,000 people. That's all you're going to be able to have. You're not going to be able to have a force that's going to be able to launch a war again. You'll have enough to maybe protect you in case of something that happens. If shit pops off, it's You not don't your get fault. an air force. Yeah. Uh, you will not get a navy. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're, we're... And I'm not saying that this was undeserved. Like, you start a war. This is what happens when you end up losing the war that you start. But from the German perspective of it, and the reason I'm saying that is because you got to put yourself in that mindset to understand how everything that's going to happen in the future occurs and how it's allowed to occur. Yeah. So you have this populace of people back home that are like, we still don't believe, like we didn't see any reason to think that we were going to lose this. Now we're just having to hear from you that, oh, it couldn't be won. What were we hearing that would lead us to believe that we couldn't win this thing? We had been winning, winning, winning the entire time. We didn't see anybody any cities being destroyed in Germany. Mm-hmm. We didn't see any collateral damage. Losing of German territory to yeah. like a hostile force or anything like that. And so as well as the financial military, all that kind of stuff, you then have the territory that's taken away from Germany. So 
Europe in 1914, Germany basically, you know, you have Russia and then all the way over to France, the entire area, northern area of that is basically the German Empire. Europe in 1923, when it's all divvied up, they basically take a huge portion of like the western portion of Germany and turn it into Poland. They Because wanted, there was a wasn't there a port at the end of that that was going to be strategic for the Poles to it have It was Danzig. So what they wanted, though, they had to give, because had they given Poland just landlocked access and kept Prussia as part of the German Empire, uh-huh. Prussia basically kind of went up into, I think it's like the North Sea or something like that. So you basically had Germany, Poland was created, and then the arm of Poland came up and split East Prussia from like the rest of Germany. And it was called the Polish Corridor. It could have been. And in the Polish Quarter was this city called Danzig, and it was a huge port city. So Poland got this. Glenn, Glenn Danzig, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> but then you basically have this other section on the other side of the corridor that's still East Prussia that's still considered Germany. So they're like, like you're taking our land, you're splitting up. They turned everything. the Rhineland into a DMZ, into yep. a demilitarized zone. So you couldn't be in it really because that was kind of the buffer zone in case you – did get a little cocky again to where there was like no... Like the Ruhr, like the Ruhr territory? Yeah, no the military Ryland. activity. Correct. You also then had the entire Austro-Hungary empire that was down to the south of the Germ- Germany empire. That was where you get carved out, as part of Germany as well, Czechoslovakia. Austria is reduced literally down to maybe a, like a sixth of its of its landmass that it had before. You then get Hungary as its own separate place. You then have a big portion of it being turned into Romania... And then you get Yugoslavia as well. So, I mean, a huge portion of, like, German territory is also confiscated. Again, not saying it's not deserved. You started a fucking war. I'm just saying from the standpoint of the German people, they're like, we got fucking hammered and we don't know why. Yeah, just a a complete misunderstanding of what it was. And And that's their own country's fault because you aren't being honest with your populace about shit. Sort of our fault, too. We've had this discussion, and I didn't want to get hot about it, but had we just gone into Germany after they were like, hey, armistice, and we saw things were going in our favor, we should have just laid down some carpet bombs or something just to let them know, like, hey, we kind of had you guys by the nuts. They didn't have carpet bombing back then. This is still biplanes. Okay. I'm just trying to – they had the ability and everything like that. Some way to show – You're saying, like, march in and occupy. Yes, And be like, this is how easily we marched in. We were this close that we could march in and occupy. They needed to have some type of tangible, physical thing that they could see that said, oh, we lost because they're here. Mm -hmm. Like they did in World War II where they divided fucking Germany into the east and the west. And both were occupied heavily to make sure this shit didn't pop off again. And yeah, like you're saying, they got hammered, rightfully so. But this was the first time like um, what you could consider, I think, a modern war. You know, it was called the Great War. It was the war that they thought was going to end all wars. This was the first time that these, like, countries that had basically taken over, but at the same time weren't land grabbing, because, like, French didn't really get any more land. Yeah. And, like, Italy was there, but they didn't get any more land into, Germ- Germ- you know, Germanic lands and everything. The United States wasn't like, we're taking your land. They took all the colonies. Like, Germany had a ton of colonies, like, in Africa and everything, that they lost those too. But you're in a position where like you don't have these people then occupying that land as like a reminder. France just went back to France. Now you have Poland and you still have a bunch of German people living in Poland as well. We, we yelled at them. We took away their toys. 
we took away their allowance, but we didn't spank them. And, and sorry, my getting to a roundabout way, my point was this. I don't know if we knew how to do this. Yeah, no, not It, it, not it was all. a trial run. We were like, so we, we're going to charge them this much. Does this sound like a good amount? They're like, yeah, that sounds like the amount of all the damage for the hospital, like all of the land damage. And then they were like, so we're going to take their military down to this. That'll let them protect themselves, but they won't. And they're like, yeah, that number sounds good, 100,000. And then they were like, well, how much land do we take from them? And they're like, I don't know, just start carving out shit and giving it to people. So not saying that it wasn't warranted. I just think that there wasn't the, they didn't know how to go about it. Yeah, it's like the first guy that killed somebody, you just eye for an eye murder. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is, you and just then, kill him too. And then you're not anticipating that like this is going to create essentially like a homegrown nationalist like extremist movement because it you've never seen that maybe happen before. Yeah, they went from the fire starter to the person that got arrested then to the person that was like, "Hey, you get probation." Like mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't enough of a punishment that was in something that the people would understand to really get it. And not to be on their side, but again, the same time, if we've never seen it happen before to know how to punish, how are you supposed to know how to react after you just lost like yeah. that? Like, you're probably going to be mad, especially like you say, if you've been lied to about all this kind of stuff, you're going to think, you know, they came down way too hard, which in essence, maybe they did, or they just should have come down in a different way. In a different way. It just, it, it sort of makes sense, but any logical brain, you just can't come to that conclusion. It's too big. Yeah. It's too big to comprehend all the people that it's going to be impacting. Well, Adolf ends up being one of these people in the camp of it's got to be nothing but the stab in the back theory. So he wholesale buys into this. He's already on on board with the anti-Semitism and everything. So, of course, it makes perfect sense. It falls right into, yeah. right into you know, it can't be any other way but this. So uh, to clean up Hitler's uh, last couple days in war, he was involved in a mustard gas attack that blinded him. And he was actually in the hospital when he found out that they had lost the war Mm -hmm. and his vision had been restored. He was just recovering. And he says that when, and I don't know if doctors say this too, or it's just him, but it's just fucking funny that he said that the moment that he realized and learned that Germany had given up, Mm -hmm. he suffered a second bout of blindness. Hysterical blindness is what (laughs) they call it. Yeah. And, Basically, his doctor's like, he, this is psychosomatic. Is. Like, this is yep. this is Ricky Bobby out there thinking that he's mm-hmm. on fire. Yeah, and then see. his legs don't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, no one's stabbing him in the fucking thigh. He's not stabbing himself into it to wake himself out of it. He's just like, ah, fuck, we lost. I can't see again. Like, I'm so angry that I lost my vision. That's mm-hmm. him trying to prep how much he hates what's about to happen with the Treaty of Versailles. So, and he's lost at this point too. He, you know, he doesn't know where he's going to go. So he's able to stay in the army because that's really the only place he's actually found like some structure maybe in a sense of purpose. So he's an Iron Cross recipient. Like he's, he's very good at what he did. Yeah. Well, the guy that recommended him. Yeah. So he ends up staying uh, with the army and he's brought in to basically, I don't know if it's considered an intelligence or like information gathering, it was. T- you know, department or anything like that, but after the end of the war, you're dealing with all of these extremist parties stepping up and kind of establishing themselves because you have all of these people that are now out of the military, all these people at home don't believe we should have lost and everything. So you get all these really extreme like right wing groups. And he's sent undercover to essentially infiltrate this one group called the German Workers Party. And yep. it's an extremist right wing group. And this party, the German Workers Party, is the precursor, what will eventually become the National Socialist German Workers Party or the Nazis. And they they must have known, they must have seen something in Hitler and the army that 
really sort of started off his oratory abilities because the um, group that you were talking about was called the Reichswehr. Mm-hmm. And there were the people that actually sent him to like propaganda school and to be able yeah. to start to learn his speech mm-hmm. in a way to where he could control people. Like he was an actual trained orator and speaker. Yeah. And he was trained in these ways of deception, which play kind of a, a critical role in everything that he did. But he was an actual trained person to know how to do this stuff. And they wanted him partially because they wanted to try to root out communism and what was left of the 100,000 that was in the army. Basically try to keep the newly established government from collapsing. Because at this point, when you get these new governments, coups and like, well, and they oh, don't yeah. call them coups in Germany. They call them putsch. Putsches. Putsches. So a new government essentially is not on stable footing. They're trying to go ahead and not only rebuild after not really rebuild, like structurally wise, but like financially start making these payments, all this stuff. Like these extremist groups can get a hold and like, you know, launch pushes to try to take over and everything. So it's still kind of a tenuous time. And on a meeting um, that he was infiltrating on September 12th, 1919, some guy was talking about how they should join back again with like the Austrian people and like create like an awesome, something like that that pissed off Hitler about like not the pure Germanic lines and everything. He stands up and basically just goes like on a tirade against this guy just on a whim. Like he's not, he wasn't, he was there to observe, Yeah. but he feels so impassioned to do this. He stands up and just lays into this guy enough to where the guy has to leave the hall that they're having this. And they used to meet in these places that were basically like beer halls and basically large meeting places where all of these younger soldiers and angry guys would, would meet and everything to hear all this information, these speakers. And he does such a good job that he actually catches the attention of the party chair, whose name is Anton Drexler. And, you know, he comes back, reports to whatever military intelligence and everything. They're like, okay, keep doing this. In fact, you're doing so good at this. You should get in deeper. You need to apply for membership. And so at the prompting of essentially his commanding officer, he applies to join the party and is accepted as what's considered the 555th member. I thought it was just the 50. Oh, yeah, that's right. They started at 500 to make them seem like a larger, more legitimate party. So he was the 55th member of the fucking Nazi party or the German Workers Party at this point. Well, he was so struck by – or Anton was so struck by him that it only took him – did you say – did you say it took him a week? He was accepted in the same week that he actually applied. It, it was something really, really yeah, quick, was, especially it was because there wasn't that like quick. A, it wasn't hard to review people applying for this. It's like there's not a stack yeah, of fucking it's applications. It's like, well, I mean, there's 555 of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> or 554 before. Well, and the first record of Hitler bringing up the Jewish question is dated to September 16th. 1919 while he's at one of these like meetings. Well, and that was part of something that Anton had done for him because that first night that he was there and really showed up Mm -hmm. and made an impact. Showed up and showed out. Yeah. um, Anton gave him the pamphlet or pamphlet that he had written called my political awakening. And that was an anti-capitalist, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic kind of rhetoric that was talking about how he formed the German Workers' Party mm-hmm. based on these things. So Hitler, in a sense, like you were saying, was trying to infiltrate because it was his job, 
But it was almost like the German Workers' Party may have infiltrated Hitler more than it, we it was the could wor- imagine. It was the worst place they could have put yeah, him because yeah, they yep. lost him to it ex- like extremely quickly. He heard enough shit in his past that when these guys were saying it and then coupling it with his other beliefs about how the country got fucked, it was just like the perfect unholy matrimony. Before he actually quits the military and then does this full-time, joins his party like and works for them full-time, part of me thinks, too, he was out of the army at, at like this moment when he was in there and he was simply just yeah. doing that because they kept paying him and he had a way to go ahead and support his lifestyle while he was, you know, getting deeper into this party. That's, I, I didn't even think about that, but that was probably the day where he started maybe planning to exit the army mm-hmm. was he saw like, he had to find a place for himself where he could support himself in yeah. that. And so that comes about when he actually meets this guy named Dietrich Eckhart, who's the party co-founder. I can't remember who the other co-founder was. It was, um, the first guy, it was Anton. Oh, was it? Okay. Anton Drexler created the DAP, or the German Workers' Party. Okay, and then the other party founder was Dietrich Eckhart. Yep. And he becomes basically like a weird, fucking evil surrogate. Like he, he's, he's a mentor. A mentor, <laughs> exactly. He's the guy that essentially helps to create... He's the Frankenstein to Frankenstein's monster. True. Is what he yeah. is. And at this point, too, around this time, they actually changed the name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. And essentially known as the Nazi party is what it'll be known as. And Hitler himself, I'm not sure if this is the Hitler narrative, but said that he designed the banner Mm -hmm. and he had saw the swastika at like um, a family friend's home or something like that. He took a trip like Switzerland or something like that. Wasn't it in a crest or some shit like that? He was in a family crest from like a pro nationalist or like socialist family. Or something, and it was in their family crest. And they're like, oh, that's a Nordic symbol that means, was it like peace? Or uh, it was a Nordic symbol and because... Peace or... Uh, I tra- Not tranquility, but like just something not bad. <laughs> exactly. And so he co-ops this and basically designs what's known as, you know, the Nazi flag, the red, the white circle, the black swastika. It was on the armbands and all that shit. And that becomes essentially the new party banner. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to talk about the symbol without just kind of being in awe of it because just the way that it looks, I mean, it's... You can't look at it now and think of it being anything else but that. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know if I'm maybe telling on myself, but there's just something so... It's not appealing. I'm not trying to use the word appealing mm-hmm. like I like looking Iconic. at them, but it's almost like aesthetically just with the way that it's cut. Like it's, there's something that it triggers behaviorally. Yeah. And yep. I don't know if it's because for us, it's what it is and what it symbolizes and what it means. But like at the time, you know, when people are seeing that, they just, they have a different meaning behind it. Yeah. Like it'll come to mean something else. It means something horrible right out of the gate because of what it like stands for, but it's going to even become more so. It, it started out, I'm sure when they saw it before we got the 30,000 foot view of it, it's probably a very appealing looking symbol to them mm-hmm. because it means it, peace. We're, we're, we want peace for all, we're whatever the yeah. fuck. And it was very striking, like the red against the black against mm-hmm. the white, like it just all really came together. Um, probably one of the biggest helpers that I think maybe been, or was unintended in the beginning, but, uh, old Dietrich had a publishing company before, he had actually started this German workers' yeah, party. he was like a successful poet or playwright. Yeah. Or something like that. He had made quite a bit of money. He used that money to acquire a newspaper. 
And so he was publishing essentially a right-wing extremist, like anti-Semitic newspaper yep. and newsletter and everything. And he also, because of his status, like as a famous playwright and everything, he basically, Hitler was like this, like all fire and just like no focus. Like he just came off the cuff. They said he didn't know how to talk to people outside of talking at people. He didn't know how to listen and react. And so, yeah, Dietrich saw this, or Eckhart saw this, and was basically like, I can use this skills, but I can try to hone these skills. And You say the shit, I'll print the articles that clean up what you say. Exactly, and because he had, like, entry into these different echelons of society, being a playwright and everything like that, he was able to kind of, like, bring, like, Hitler into that and teach him how to interact with different, like, facets of society, which, if you're going to try to gain power later as Hitler does, he uses these skills to try to use as a mass appeal to try to get as many people on board. And, you know, it, it starts to really build up steam in March, uh, 1920. This is when he quits the military and becomes essentially full-time, full-time Nazi, full-time worker for the national socialist party. And before we go further than that, I do have to go to the bathroom. Okay. Well, Hey there, all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for socials. Where can they find us on Instagram? If they want to uh, follow <laughs> us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram. That goes the same for Threads as well. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Ooh, tell them about Twitter. Historically High. That's historically H I on Twitter. And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam? At Historically High Podcast at gmail.com. Gmail. All right, and back to the show. All right, and we're back. So where are we off with where are we at with Dolph? We are right in the middle of Munich. And Munich is sort of like an anti-government hub for people that are nationalists. You have Berlin, you have where the Weimar Republic is in Berlin. That's the capital. Um, it's where everybody meets. It's where all the governmental shit happens. It's also going through right now, like what they would consider their Roaring Twenties, which coincidentally enough, it was the Twenties. Basically, Berlin has become like more of the like liberal place. Whereas Berlin Mun- sounded awesome. Every time I heard them explain it, when they're like, "There's discos and there's nudity and there's Music prostitution and, art and, and there's and all drugs. this kind of stuff," yeah, it sounded fucking cool. And Munich is like the area where it's all of the hardcore, like hardcore German nationalists. So that's of course where the Nazis are going to be. Again, this this is a small party. This is a party is not even barking at the door of any legitimate government entity. Yeah, this is just a fifty a group of fifty five guys right now that are trying to push this like dumb fucking hateful rhetoric and everything. So, like, already starting to hone his speaking skills in front of like crowds and everything like that. In February of nineteen twenty one, for the first time, like he addresses like six thousand people. That is so many people for I know. such a little group. I know. Like, but I'm wondering how that gets up because, you know, I'm sure they have a couple more members at this point. But, like, is this, like, at one of these beer halls? Like, how are you advertising this? Like, come listen oh, to this shit. You didn't hear how they were doing their advertising? Mm-mm. You've seen the Blues Brothers, right? Yeah. Uh, you know how they advertise for their show to try to fill up the theater where they're driving around town with the uh, speakers mm-hmm. on the back of their cars blaring and they're handing out pamphlets yeah. and all that shit? That was just, they were just mass. Tagging the area. Marketing and blanketing and everything. Yeah, just doing everything that they could to try to bring people in. And 6,000 people in 1921 feels like a pretty good draw. Not that the year would matter, but 1921, it probably wasn't as populated. Yes. 
So it just it seems like such a big pull for him. And they knew that they weren't just going to make their way into the capital with just what they had where they were. So June 1921, um, Adolf and Eckhart flew to Berlin because they want to start trying to push that Nazi party into the capital city, into where it can do the most damage. But isn't a putsch happening at this point, too? Yeah. Well, um, the putsch happens a little bit later. This is just them trying to Not reach the beer out. hall one. Not no, no, no. no. Yeah, there, there was a middle one in between okay. there. Because this one was just him and Eckhart. They were there just personally on a mission to try to grow Scouting the to get members. Yeah. And, and try they, to kind of get like a chapter maybe established in Berlin or something. They'll end up pushing up there with uh, Strasser, okay. the Strasser brothers mm-hmm. later on. They just kind of wanted to feel it out. Well, while they're gone... Um, Drexler. Yeah, the one of the holy triumvirate of the Nazi party that's back there is Anton Drexler. Anton Drexler is trying to basically cut the Nazi party in half for whatever they had. Their ranks are growing. He, it's not he still wants, 55, but... He he sees a path to, to getting more legitimacy because there's other nationalist groups. They all just have... It's kind of like it is in today's politics. You have two sides. You you know you have your left and your right, but then within that, you have so many different factions that's sitting at so many different center points or far points and everything. Yeah. So you have a bunch of different like far-right extremist groups, and... Drexler is like, well, we should probably to you know increase our power. We should merge with one of these groups, and Hitler's like, no, we're not fucking doing that. We're not merging, and so he tries to kind of pull this shit behind their back while they're gone doing this. And at this point, that's when there's kind of a, a mutiny within the Nazi Party, and Hitler's just like, fuck it, I'm out, and resigns. And at this point, he's he's kind of their public like speaker. He's their face. You have. You know, Eckhart that is kind of the the leader and everything like that, and everyone still knows that. But you have this guy who's really being the public, like, the the propagandist. That's what he is. He's he's the main propagandist. Do you not think that this might have been Hitler's DV years? What do you mean? Do you think that he was so angry about it? I personally believe that the reason that Hitler didn't want to do it was because he was kind of the top banana of the Nazi party. Oh, yeah. And he knew if he had to merge into another party, it wasn't like they were bringing in the other party and merging. They were the ones that would be agreeing to merge in this other party and he would lose his standing. And you don't want to keep playing with other guys that are leaders of these parties because they might be better than you. And and at this point, too, I don't think, you know, this was the first thing that he found that he felt like he was good at. And I think he kind of it – w- it was a high-risk, high-reward situation that he did when he resigned. He's like, either I'm going to go start back at square one and I'll try to do some something else. He had built a following also – not a following, but he'd built a reputation as this like really great orator. And so, and there were other far right groups. Like part of the fear was too, that he could go to one of these other groups and, you know, make them more prominent and popular. That's what I'm saying. You think he knew his worth and was it? No, no, I guess that's why I think he also did that. So I think he quit. So they would chase him. So he, (laughs) he, he resigns and the party's like, well, shit, like this guy was the one that was really getting us visibly out there and kind of getting us new followers. So behind Drexler's back, Eckhart goes to Hitler and is like, hey, we want you back in the party. And he's like, fine, you know what? I'll come back, but I'm coming back in Drexler's spot. I'm coming back as the chair. Tell me I'm pretty. And not only am I coming back as the chair, I want to have dictatorial powers in this party as the chair. I want to be in charge. And I want everybody to have the same mustache. (laughs) And so apparently the collection of people that were in charge of the Nazi party. It wasn't just, you know, Drexler and, um, 
Eckhart. Eckhart. You also had to have financial backing too from other sources. So there was almost like I want the only thing I think of is like an executive board of the fucking Nazi Party, basically agreed and said, "Yep, we'll go ahead and bring Hitler back in." The benefit was higher than keeping Drexler as it. You so think it, it was that, or do you think that it was like softball sponsorship? Like, so sponsoring a softball team, like, there were probably people that were making a little bit more money. Not rich people yet, mm-hmm. but people that were maybe had heard Hitler speak once or twice and like, hey, yeah, this is, he, he's good. He yeah. could do some good. I got some money. Here's, there's nothing out of my pocket. Yeah. See what you guys can do with it. Yeah, I'm guessing Here's there were people bucks. like that. So they would probably have to go to those boosters, almost, you would say. I'm like, guessing hey. there was a, a group of people that were, like, financially responsible yeah. and also had more pull for the party. But, yeah, so they install him as essentially what we're going to refer to as the dictator of the Nazi party at this point. The Fuhrer. The, yes, what he refers to, what he will eventually want people to refer to him as exclusively. And this is at 32 years old. And, again, it's not a huge party at this point. But as he starts gaining a prominence... Membership numbers get up to about 3,600 plus members he, of the party. He didn't waste his 20s. No. <laughs> he, he was really on his shit in his 20s to be 32. You're bringing these numbers up. After you get this this chairman position, you just launch right into doing what you do best, which I'm sure probably everybody's like, thank God he's back because he's out there hitting these beer halls. He's doing these speeches. We're signing people up left and right because they're so fired up. When this motherfucker hits the stage, he just lights the fireworks and goes. So their, their party is made up a lot of a a very specific, specific demographic males, single, no families, no kids, lower class. Yep. And between 15 and 30 years old. So you have, People that took part, some people that took part in World War One, uh, disgruntled, you know, soldiers and everything like that that buy into the stab in the back theory. You then have essentially toward the younger spectrum, you have this generation of like young guys who didn't fight in the war and didn't contribute in that sense, but still somehow feel like they're paying the price for it and feel disenfranchised and everything. They feel what Hitler almost felt like learning about the old mm-hmm. Germanic peoples. Yep. The winners. And so, you know, around this time as well, you get a, they basically get a diamond and, you know, they land a diamond. He, he gets a murderer's row of followers. Just these three dudes alone. Hermann Goering, uh, was like an Air Force super pilot. He was a World War I uh, fighter ace. If you've ever heard of Red Baron, the Red Baron, it's not just a fucking frozen pizza. The Red Baron essentially was a German pilot who was like the best ace Hold in World up. War II. Red Baron pizza is modeled after a Nazi gentleman? Yeah, the Nazi pilot. That's why it's called the Red Baron. Are you Red fucking Baron. kidding me? Nope. That's just been sitting there this whole time. Yeah. We're like, hey, maybe that's not good. I guess not. <laughs> I'm a DiGiorno guy. <laughs> yeah, me too. And now a Totino's. I, uh, yeah. and I was never a Red Baron guy just basically because I think it was an inferior frozen pizza product. But they had that little stand to heat that shit up and make it crunchy. It was a big, See, I, didn't, I wouldn't dish. have known that because I never bought Red Baron pizza. All right. Well, now I'm out mm-hmm. too. Now I'm you're out on Red, Red Baron, Baron pizza. Good so, to know. Goering was a successful pilot, and when the Red Baron was killed, he took over the Red Baron's squadron. So it basically promoted him or, like, thrust him into, like, rock star status, basically. Like, the pilots were what, like, professional athletes would be today, like, famous professional athletes. So they get him in. um, His wife actually was, like, the fanatic and then brought him on board. And the reason that he really got into it is he had 
kind of grown accustomed during wartime of having this celebrity status, this power, this authority, and all of that is now gone. And now he sees this and he's like, well, I think I can find a way in here. He's already being treated as soon as he comes in. He's already being treated like a rock star because people know who he is. He provides them almost a little bit of legitimacy as far as a party that they can have this person. And so he finds a place where he can be, I guess, worshipped or adored or have a sense of purpose or leadership or something like that. I think you hit it on the head with a sense of purpose because after Goering was done with the Air Force after they lost, he was like a stunt pilot where he would go do these shows and he would just blow people's dicks off with what he could do mm-hmm. in the air. But you can only see that a million times before you're just like, yeah, that's kind of cool. So after he lost that, he became a commercial pilot. When he becomes a commercial pilot, which in the 20s probably wasn't a burgeoning business, he also cut Mm. his teeth being a private pilot as well. Yeah, but there's nothing glamorous or anything about being a commercial pilot. So him being able to walk back into a situation where he gets that awe and that adulation Mm -hmm. from the people, but then at the same time, he gets his purpose back because he's trying to create something that he can be famous for again. Exactly. Um, Number two. Army Captain Ernst Rom. Ernst was an interesting That's a fella. Nazi name. Huh? Sorry if there's anybody named Ernst Rom listen to this, but that's a Nazi name. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you got the dots in it, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Ernst was, like I say, he was an Army Captain. He was a man that knew how to get things. He had a cache of weapons being an Army guy that mm-hmm. they could pick off, they could pull from. He had connections within the military so he could get them equipment and everything. Yeah. He was like a like what you would think of like the prototypical drill sergeant. Big, huge, fucking stocky guy. Uh, had like a scar across his face from, from World War One, And he actually gets put in charge of what's called the SA. I don't know what the German word is for. I can't remember. It's like the Stoffel something. Yeah. But basically what it is, is it translates to like the stormtroopers and they're also known as like the brown shirts. So if you've ever seen like a picture of Hitler, or watched like a video or anything, he'll, he goes between different uniforms, but he never wears like a full on like military with medals and everything uniform. Not yet. Not yet. They're basically just these guys that are like in brown shirts and then like black pants or something like that. And it was styled after, um, wasn't it styled after Mussolini's guys that were the, cause Mussolini is still making his bid for power mm-hmm. or is he in power at this point? Uh, I believe at this point he is in power and cause he'd been in power for 12 years when they first meet. Yeah. And Hitler just absolutely was head over heels for this dude. He had this weird love of Mussolini that sort of changes over time from like a love to almost like a pity. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like he almost feels bad for the guy. Cause he's like, we're doing the same shit, but you're falling so far behind. He gets me. like pissed off. He's like, how did you eventually get like, how did I look yeah. up to you? Cause you're, you're a fucking idiot. Maybe that's what it is. He looks yeah. at him, he's like, how did you get as far as you did? Exactly. And then he's upset because I like, he's like, I look, used to fucking look up to you. I have your poster on my wall, man. He had have some decency uh, at some point in his office. He will have a bust. Yeah. Of fucking Mussolini in his office. Turns out Mussolini just was a bust. Yeah. But it, it just, the whole thing with what he was trying to back these guys with putting Ernst Rome as the head of the SA the SA wasn't these tight-knit, very controllable soldiers. They were just kind of dickhead hooligans. Yeah, that's what it was. It was hooliganism, and they would just be, like, pointed in a direction and then go cause, like, havoc and everything. Yeah, there so, was no, like, this is the plan. It's just like, hey, go have a couple beers at the beer hall and start punching people. Like, exactly. Just cause some sort of issue. They would cause issues with other political parties. They would go to their rallies and stuff like that. They would start fights, all kinds of shit. Attack Jewish people. Yep. And so... 
when Ernst Rom comes in here, Hitler and um, looks at him and is like, I got this guy that can actually whip this, this essay into shape. And actually use this as like a legitimate like enforcement squad, like a goon squad. We'll give these guys a direction in life. Yep. So he puts Ernstrom essentially in as the head of the stormtroopers. Um, mm. The other guy is who will be eventually the deputy chancellor or vice chancellor. Um, is he the vice chancellor after Von? No, no. Once Hitler becomes chancellor and Von Poppen happen. Is gone. I thought Van Papen was still his vice chancellor for most of his. Nope. Hess ends up after Papen is gone. Once he takes full power, then he puts Hess as his deputy chancellor or his vice chancellor. And Hess is a fairly brilliant man himself, I think. he. That's the really odd thing is now when you think about people that get into like white nationalism and shit like mm-hmm. that, they don't seem like super smart guys. They were attracting fairly intelligent, well-to-do people towards the end of this. But, guys, I mean, you have an army captain. You have an Air Force ace pilot. You have Rudolf Hess, who I believe was in the... He was somewhere in the business world. I don't remember what kind of a businessman he was, but he was a fairly well-to-do guy. He's prominent. A good head on his shoulder. Not, like, nationally... But from like, because this is still a localized movement in Munich. Yeah. This isn't, they don't have the strength or anything like that to be challenging the government at this point, like I was saying. But basically, as far as these extremist groups, they're becoming the most legitimate out of all these fringe extremist groups. Yeah. They're kind of rising out of the mud Mm -hmm. is what they're doing. And when you have guys like Goring, you have guys like Rom, and you have guys like Rudolf Hess who are in your ear all the time telling you how to do things. It's almost like there were a lot of successful people that saw Hitler as a means for them to continue their success. Yes. When really all Hitler did was kind of pull these things out of other people mm-hmm. that benefited him. Yes. It was like the... At chest- the same time, they thought that they were just using Hitler. Hitler was just using them. Yeah. That's like, exactly what he it was. Just, but he was just that much more conniving than everybody mm-hmm. else. And there's so many things, like so many peace agreements and shit like that that he signed where they walked away from the table. The non-aggression like, packs and all that yeah, kind of shit. Yeah. Like, hey, we feel really good about this. Hitler was a really nice he's, guy. He's forgotten about it by the time <laughs> yeah. he even gets out of the room. He's like, what I just sign again? It, it meant nothing. Hesselino and be like, hey man, what'd you just sign? He's like, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Was that a bar napkin that I signed? I don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to listen to that. So after doing some uh, some hashing out about what the party's going to stand for on February 24th in 1920, a 25-point plan. When I heard that, all I thought was fucking Michael Scott trying to save Dunder Mifflin <laughs> with the like 15-point plan. I was like, they just stood up and you know listed off in front of like all their followers. And basically, it was a bunch of borrowed stuff from like other nationalist groups, stuff that was more like broad reaching. And then basically, they had like the hardcore shit then um, rallying against the Treaty of Versailles. Basically, their position was that they would no longer recognize the Treaty of Versailles. They would stop all type of like reparation payments, everything. They would consider it null and void. A ton of anti-Semitism in there as well. Yeah, couldn't forget to add that shit. Oh, of course not. Mm -hmm. And... So, I mean, they have they have their, yay, 25-point plan of, of how they're going to go ahead and save Germany. But again, they they lack any type of, like, they have some heavy hitters, but they lack anyone with, like, actual legitimacy that people, would, like, white-spanning people would get behind. Yeah, you would need, like, a, a World War One general. Mm-hmm. Somebody that everybody knew. 
Well, and the other point, like, I know you have everyone done, I forgot to mention it. So part of also what a lot of people could get behind was, like, stomping out Bolshevism, which was, like, Bolshevist socialism, which communism, and then also the Jewish international finance, the the cabal, essentially, that was trying to rule the world and to force them to lose World War One. You can't ever say deep state without the words that mm-hmm. you just used, which... If this guy was using it and you're still talking and rambling on about how the deep state, the deep state might be real. It just might not be what they think that it is. So in 1923, there's been this buildup of scheming within the Nazi party that they need to do something big. And what they're going to do is previously in Berlin, there had been a attempt to overthrow the, the Weimar Republic. Yep. And it was called the Berlin Putsch. And it basically took course over the, it was supposed to take course over several days and everything. They were going to infiltrate different government agencies and offices and then basically take over where the Weimar Republic was. And one of the guys that was part of this, his name was General Eric Ludendorff. Well, obviously this Berlin Putsch didn't go, didn't go off. And so what ended up happening is Hitler and I think it was Hitler and um, Eckhart went there. Uh, and basically went there and got there like on the third day and it was already petering out. Like the, <laughs> there had been like somehow of like 12,000 person worker strike had happened yeah. that had like completely derailed the putsch and it just like, it fizzled out. Uh, they showed up to just kind of like, this is what you guys are going to do. Like this was your big attempt to do it. It's mm-hmm. already over by the time we get here. So this is like treasonous and like this Ludendorff guy was part of it. He wasn't like the mastermind or the head of it. So I don't think, I think he got kind of overlooked, but he was still this hugely famous, well-known world war one general. So Hitler basically goes to him and he's like, we would be honored. We're going to be planning this, you know, push in Munich to seize power. And then once we seize power in Munich, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and consolidate and mer- march up to Berlin and overthrow the government. You got an itch. We got a scratch. We're exactly. We're going to make this happen for you. And I'm sure Ludendorff, seeing the growing numbers of the party, was like, hey, there's really something to this guy. Like, he's he's got some shit going on. And he on. was using him, too, because the whole thing was Hitler was basically using Ludendorff to try to get into power and then, was going to, and then was going to push him out. Yeah. Ludendorff is like, I'm... I'm fucking General Ludendorff. Like, no one knows who this other fucking guy is. Like, I'm not going to have to worry about this guy, but he's giving me the tools to essentially try to get myself into power again. And unfortunately, Ludendorff seems like just the most untouchable human being that ever walked the planet. Like, really, that's the key. You just serve as a general in World War One, and then no one fucking gives a shit what you do. Yeah, he just... The, the upcoming pooch that he was brought in for, and these are both should just be called pooches instead of pooches, mm-hmm. because they both just screwed the pooch. Neither one of them really worked out well, but Ludendorff, in this, he just, he can't be touched. Like, he just, no matter how many pooches he does, mm-hmm. he's not going to be in trouble. So to kind of set the stage of this, and don't take us wrong when we say, hey, this is, this is essentially attempting a coup to overthrow the government. Like a full-on coup to try to gain power in Munich and in Bavaria. I gotta say, though. For as big of a deal as this is, and sort of the psychological turning point, how important it is, the fact that this was such a small, stupid thing that he really thought was going to lead him mm-hmm. to where he was like going to This be. was going to work. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like it, it is. You're in Bavaria, brother. You're not in an important sector of really any part of Germany. Like, you're just, you're a Bavarian. You're not you're Well, not maybe he Berlin. thought that's why it was going to work, because he was starting out smaller. But even the fact this, this one was not, like, even taking over in Munich, 
the likelihood of it was so small. Like you wonder like what the thought fucking process was. On you it. take two steps outside of Bavaria and they're all going to be waiting for you to mm-hmm. just knock you out. So at the, I want to say it was called the Lurger Burger Brow Killer. The Burger Brow Killer. Mm-hmm. So at the, the Burger Brow Killer, they, at this point, Bavaria is run by what's called the Triumvirate. And it's three people, one of them being in charge of the police, one being in charge of the military, one being in charge of the actual, like, running of the legislature and like government. A, a governor, kind of. Yeah, exactly. But all three essentially in power to kind of check the other ones. And so they're all speaking at this burger broiler. They're this coming, beer hall. Yeah, they're having, like, a town hall and everything. You have your governor, Gustav Ritter von Kahr. Um, He actually originally supported the Nazi platform. But he just couldn't do it publicly. Mm-hmm. He he had met with Hess. He had met with uh, Hitler. He had kind of talked about his aspirations. And of course, like, yeah, I could probably get on board with that. I mean, I can't do it in public, but like, you have my support. And and they took that essentially to overestimate what control they would have were they to put Von Karr in a situation where it was now time to side with. Who are you going to side with? Yeah. They thought, they thought that they were going to do this. Von Karr was going to be like, oh, yeah, like I've already talked to you guys. We're good. And then was going to essentially open the doors of the government to let them take control. So during this, you know, they're having a speech to all these people. The fucking – and it's guarded. It has guards and everything like that. So Hitler and a few people, I think Goering was with him, they infiltrate the um, burger broiler, the beer hall. And as they walk in, essentially they're able to get in like, what, a dozen guys? Well, and that's the incredible part was this was Dolph, Ludendorff. Uh, I think Goering was there, like you said. Ludendorff wasn't there, though. He was. N- not during the initial part. Oh, he they, comes in they to had, make the later. Okay, they yeah. had the plan essentially that Hitler was going to go in first, and then as they were like, "Who are you? Who are you to do this?" In this grand dramatic entrance, Ludendorff was going to come in and be like, "I am supporting these guys." Everyone was going to be like, oh, "It's Ludendorff. Where you should all get behind the Nazis." So his plan was for like a dramatic, like late entry <laughs> when Ludendorff would come in and gain, you know, lend legitimacy to this whole thing. But him, a few SA brown shirts show up. And this is a meeting of 3,000 people in this beer hall. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand. Maybe I should have Googled what an actual beer hall looks like, but how the fuck is a beer hall going to hold 3,000 people? Those places Just a huge be- auditorium that serves beer. For, well, and it's that's fucking where, Bavaria, dude. This is my biggest sticking point of this whole fucking thing, and this is where I have to blame the Germans for this whole fucking thing. Why in the world would you ever trust a man in Germany that doesn't like beer? That's true. Yeah, Hitler didn't really drink. He had to, like, have drinks forced upon him to give the illusion that he was the everyman. He put sugar in wine. Yes, Because he was that much of a a different guy. But to be German and to see this guy show up at a beer hall and drink a beer to try to look like one of the guys, and as soon as he makes that face, they should have kicked his ass out of the country. They should have sent him back to Austria. So, and sorry, to go back just a little bit before the the beer hall putsch in... um, in Munich leading up to this, there were instances of like violence by the Nazi party. So this wasn't like the first time that they had ever been violent during this putsch. So there was an instance where like Hitler went into in 1921 in September to the Lurven killer beer hall um, during a speech of the Bavarian league, which essentially was like another rival political party dragged the guy, the leader off the platform and beat him. And Hitler got a month. He was got sentenced to three months in jail and only served a month. And so he got out there. 
they start making headlines due to some of kind of like the violence and everything that the red, that the SA, that the brown shirts are doing. Um, and then early in 1923, because this whole thing happens, when was the date that the... November 8th. Okay, so early in 1923, that's when nationalism just in general is gaining popularity. Again, the Nazi party is just one of many parties within this extreme right nationalism. But nationalism as itself is rising. People are just, you know, getting upset. You have this insane amount of hyperinflation that's going on. Because their idea behind trying to beat the money issue that they're facing because of the Treaty of Versailles and just losing so much land, not to mention, and this is something that maybe you really hadn't thought about because it really didn't come to me until you were kind of talking about it earlier, but how much money are you losing in your economy based on all of those colonies that you have down in Africa that are bringing you up all these raw goods to mm-hmm. be able to sell and yeah. all that kind of stuff? And you've lost not only that, the colonies, but you've lost a significant portion of your own land. Yeah. Land so that was meant to support your people. They're facing this crazy hyperinflation that people that are like considered middle class, they're printing so much money that the Deutschmark, whatever they're using at the time, the Reichmark, well, Reichmark will come later on. I think they might have been Reichmarks then too. But all of this money that these people had saved that are in banks, you have banks calling people saying, hey, can you actually come pull your money out? Because it's costing us more money to hold. And not like a little bit of money. Yeah. Like enough money to where like people had to carry it home in like bags and shit. People were getting robbed. Mm-hmm. But it was like they were robbing like. Yeah, exactly. Well, as Hitler is kind of presenting himself and kind of gathering a following and the Nazi party is growing, he's establishing this kind of this character that he's like the everyman. He calls himself the drummer. Um, he even like called himself like the little man or like the, and he addressed himself cause he was a corporal and everything, which I thought was weird because little corporal Napoleon. Oh. And I'm sure he probably had some, cause he studied that kind of shit. So I'm sure that that might've been part of it too. It almost turned into like a name that people would call him to make fun of him though. Like to almost like question his not, manhood to call not him at a certain corporal. point. Yeah, not at a certain point, yeah. but even like he he almost took it so like people couldn't use it against him almost, but it was still sounded really derogatory. Well, we'll talk about uh, von Hindenburg, which I have a question mm-hmm. about him. But uh, he would call him like the corporal to his face to yeah. like demean him, and he says some pretty mean shit about how far Hitler's going to get in government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's presenting this facade that he's just he's the everyman. He actually publishes a book. So Mein Kampf is not his first book. He actually writes and publishes a book, but basically the guy that actually like releases the book is like an aristocrat and like a well-known like writer. He uses the pseudonym of his name to post the book. It was called The Speeches and Life of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, uh, Adolf Hitler, His Life and Speeches. Okay. And he compares that, his rise to Jesus, in that he makes allusions to that. And again, uh, by the way, Hitler... Not not a believer in religion or anything like that. He was, he might he was a believer in his own religion. Yes, but he was willing to use essentially what he felt that was people's other recognized religions. He was using it. He used it as a a tactic. Yeah, and so he he had this thing where he would actually blend politics and religion. So people, you know, he would try to essentially take that fervor and that you know uh, dedication that people have to a religion and that worship. And he would try to blur the lines between that and politics to where they would see him in a similar sense, like he was some type of messiah. And basically, around this time, too, he starts to kind of hone a political image, realizes that, like, 
he has to look a certain way and present himself. Never let himself really get photographed before this, but he starts letting himself get photographed, but only in certain circumstances and only by his own guys. Which is how publicists work now for presidents. Exactly. You'll never see a president, and if you do, it's a very grave mistake. You'll never see a president eating for a picture. One of the things he did, they said, was that he took advantage of every technological advancement in media. Yeah. So radio, newspaper, flyers, all of this kind of stuff. He was using this to try to reach as much of a population as possible to try to expand his reach as much as he could. Um, like you were saying, hyperinflation was happening at this time. So the government people were looking for an answer for that, going through all that kind of shit. They thought they would be off well off. They thought they had that money. And all of a sudden, once that's gone, who do you have to look towards the people that signed the Treaty of Versailles? Exactly. So what ended up happening is you have basically the Nazis are able to appeal to the extreme right, people that are easily susceptible to this kind of stuff. People that are like well-to-do or even more in the middle class because they're doing all right, they look at that and they're just like, yeah, that's not for us. They're willing to just do what is currently happening because it's being beneficial for them. What this hyperinflation does, essentially this economic collapse, is it brings everybody down into this lower class where everyone's like, well, this isn't fucking working. Like, what's going on? And then you have the far right and the Nazis being like, yeah, it's not working. Like, Let's not do incremental changes. We need big, yeah. bold changes and everything. So they're trying to send this message, and they're starting to reach like these people that used to be not reachable for them have started to, because of this inflation, have lowered down and had their situations you know, put in jeopardy to where now they're looking for an answer and they're willing to make compromises to get that answer and solution. They're, you know, he's still doing the blame game on the Jews. Um, the country, the Weimar Republic, actually defaults on part of the Treaty of Versailles repayments. And because of that... This part is huge. Th- uh, the <clears throat> Ruhr land that's between, that's kind of over near France, that's essentially the industrial heart of Germany, where all the manufacturing and everything takes place. Well, because they default on the Treaty of Versailles repayment plan, the French are just like, we're just going to go ahead and march in and fucking occupy this. We want this. So you basically have a society that is like just fucking down. And then it's the French just coming in and it's like, we're just going to kick you a little bit while you're down because of this. So, I mean, you have this entire, not the entire populace and everything, but you basically have like this population being like, what the fuck is going on here? Like things were supposed to get better and they're just getting worse. And then also this is when Mussolini actually marches with 30,000 people on Rome and is able to take control of the monarchy of Rome basically allows Mussolini with 30,000 guys to march on Rome to establish his own government and de facto becomes the dictator of Italy. So Hitler's just looking at this too and is like, holy shit, this works. So this is where he gets the idea of the Beer Hall Putsch is that you can do a violent overthrow of the government. And that's why he, he makes this attempt. So he marches in, they get inside the Beer Hall, um... Goering and a couple guys go over to like the back corner and set up a fucking machine gun. And then Hitler fucking stands up on the stage and fires a round off into the ceiling to get everyone's fucking attention. And is basically like, Hey, we're coming in. We're coming in to take power and takes the triumvirate triumvirate and basically shuffles them into a room to go talk to them. Von Kar, he takes uh, police chief Hans Ritter von Seisser and the Reichswehr. General Otto von Lussel all get taken hostage into this back room and 
Hitler really enjoys his gun. Hitler enjoys flashing that thing around, which to me sort of seems odd because he read a lot of Sigmund Freud after this. Mm-hmm. And Sigmund Freud really has a feeling and a belief that like the use of a gun is for like a penis. Yeah. It's a phallic. Yeah, it's, it's a phallic object. symbol that does that. And the fact that he was able to um, get in the back, tells them, hey, this is what we're going to do. Um, you guys are going to go ahead and step aside. He thinks he has Von Carr already. Yeah. So he thinks that by coming in here, Von Carr is going to talk to the other guys and be like, you know what? Maybe we should go along with this. But surprise, surprise, they way overestimated the influence in what Von Carr's position because – I think Von Karl also realizes, despite what he may have already been telling them and kind of alluding to him being on their side, the likelihood of this getting pulled off with this many people, he knows that that's very small. If he throws in his lot with them, these other two guys are going to be like, well, no, and they're going to be able to go ahead and take it out on him. They still have the support of the police and the military. He's just in charge of the government. Well, and Von Karl, I think, like you're saying, was sort of the realist to know. And part of this pooch was that um, Rom and a bunch of other SA men, uh, the brown shirts, were stationing themselves outside of police stations and army bases. Yeah, like barracks and, and like places where they could seize power and then control essentially what was going to happen, the response to the yeah. revolution. They were actually able to take over a few of them and in hoping that what was going on at the beer hall with the leader of the police was going to, he was going to throw his, Everyone stand down. These guys are fine. They're running shit now. So you have them basically saying like, no, we're not fucking signing over the fucking government to you. Oh, no. It was the opposite, wasn't it? No. I thought when they said that. So what happens is they're like, initially they were like, we're not signing over shit to you. So he's like, fine, wait here. He goes out and gives this huge speech to these like 3,000 people. And they said it was like turning a glove inside out. That by the time he was done, he had these people chanting and going crazy and everything like that. And he comes back into the room as like almost like to prove to be like, see? That's what I do. That's what I do. And at this same time when he comes in, coincidentally, this is also when Ludendorff decides to show up. Ludendorff shows up and these three guys are like, oh shit. The exact response they wanted. Oh shit. Ludendorff is behind you guys. Okay, this lends legitimacy. We can get behind this. That and Adolf's gun and Von Karr's face. Yeah. So basically <laughs> at this point, like Hitler's like, it looks like we're all wrapped up here. What we'll do is you guys hang out here, keep the guys here. I'm going to actually go and check on like Rom and all this shit to make sure I'm leading from the front uh-huh. and making sure everything's going off without a hitch that way. So he leaves and Ludendorff and Von Karr start talking and it starts getting late and Von Karr is like, all right, you guys have my support and everything like that. Listen, <laughs> we're all we're all fucking tired. Let's do this. Let's all go get some sleep in the morning. You guys come over to whatever the fucking government building is. We'll get this shit on paper. We'll get it signed over. You guys will go and take over, you know, new management. And Ludendorff is like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sleepy. And yeah, let's, and I let's Von Karr fucking walk out the front door he gets into his vehicle and he's like fuck i'm not going home he goes immediately to like the fucking government building and mobilizes the fucking police so fucking hitler comes back and he's like the fuck is von Carr? where did everybody go and ludendorff is like no it's cool like we're gonna take care of this in the morning he's like that was like our fucking you let the golden goose go yeah that there's no way that they have to fulfill this now you just were like he gave you his word and you're like cool you guys shook hands. 
so he panics at this point. They're like, well, the last thing we're, we option we have is we can march and try to take over. So they stay there during the night and they do a morning march and they're marching through Munich and they, I don't know if they get close to the palace, but they eventually come down a street and there's fucking police waiting for them and the police just fucking open fire. Which is a real shame because there is a story um, about this day that happened and this all, I don't know if this is mostly Hitler and it sort of leads into his ethos of what he believes of himself. But there's a gunshot that's fired, and someone standing right next to Hitler grabs his sleeve and pulls him to the ground. They're like locked arms or something, marching like in lockstep. And that guy goes down, and as he's going down, he pulls Hitler down to the ground with him, and he hears the bullet go past him. Yep. And then the guy actually that pulled him down ends up getting shot and killed. Mm -hmm. So. And Hitler believes at this point, after this happened, that he's destined for greater things. He believes that his destiny is to be fulfilled as the deliverer of Germany. So you would think that if he's going to be the deliverer of Germany, he has to, you know, make a grand stand here and like, (laughs) and, and, Uh you know, rouse the troops and like rally everybody. No, he fucking runs. This motherfucker ends up running and like turning down an alley. He's with a couple other of his fucking Nazi cronies and he ends up, he thinks he's been shot in the arm. He's like, I'm I'm wounded. Like these guys are carrying him. They carry him to a waiting car and then like get him out of Munich. And he's fucking wearing a fucking disguise (laughs) And basically, he's trying to get to Austria. I've been holding out for this for like six days. And I can't explain to you how happy I am that I'm about to be able to say this. Go ahead. Hitler ends up at a summer home of a gentleman named... Putschi? It's going to be so good. Putzi Hofstangel's mm-hmm. house. And I say this with so much joy because I read... And watched and heard the name Putzi Hofstangel so many times. Did you see what he looked times. like? Yeah. I'm yep. trying to think of like how to describe it. He, oh my God. <laughs> There's an actor that kind of looks like him. And I'm trying to remember what the guy's fucking name is. But he kind of looks like, uh, not Andre the Giant, but he has like weird prominent, like. A little bit of acromaglia face. Yes. Yeah. But he's like apparently a really prominent businessman. Him and Hitler have been friends for a while and everything. That's why he feels like he can go to the Hapstangles. Putzi would play the piano for him and he loved it. Mm-hmm. And I just, every day that I've heard this, I'll just be sitting in my truck or I'll be doing something. I'll just be like, Putzi Hapstangle. Like the, the name just keeps coming through my brain because so much of the times we hear Hitler talk, it always sounds so angry. And to imagine him calling another man Putsi is just so fucking funny to me. <laughs> I heard uh, interviews with him and his wife and the way that they're like talking about Hitler. They almost do it in like a weird like couple like joking back and forth when they're describing him. He's like lovely man and all this kind of stuff. And they're like asking questions about like what his involvement were in the Third Reich were. And he's like, he's like, oh, you know, me and Hitler, we got along on a lot of ideas, a lot of ideas that we didn't get along in. But he was someone that like, Here's what happened. When this thing gets a little bit later into Hitler and him gaining true power, there aren't people that don't like some of what he does yeah. that are still kept around yep. or kept alive. So the you're fact either that all this, the way in or you're all the way exactly. Out. So it's bullshit that this guy is like saying like, oh, you know, like there was certain stuff that I even told him I didn't agree with or anything like that. I'm like, the fuck you did. Like if you're still alive after World War II and you stayed in Germany during that time. 
bullshit. You were just like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. I'll go along with that. You're making me rich. Whatever. Well, not only that, to say that there's some stuff you agreed on, the stuff you didn't agree on, no matter what you didn't agree on, it's always going to be worse than what you're agreeing Mm -hmm. on. Like, what you disagree with him on should be enough to make you just not want to be around him. Was he the godfather of their kid? Uh, what was his kid's name? Um, fuck. I just know he called him Uncle Dolph. Yeah. I, Uh, I can't remember, but the son... In a weird turn of events, they, the son ends up, or I think they end up at some point, do they end up going to the United States? Cause we'll, the son we'll get through how Putsi ended up making his way out, but his son ends up enlisting and becoming a pilot in the U S air Corps Yep, to, to fight in like world war two, I think. Ooh, I don't know if he was that old yet. Oh, really? Yeah, because oh, I think he yeah. was five when Hitler gets arrested. Well, but this so is he could also, have been 19 maybe. Yeah. I mean, this is, I'm not sure. I just know he's in, he ends up joining the army air Corps. Because, yeah, this is 23 is still later on down the road, so that would give Putsi's son, Putsi Jr., a good enough time to maybe become an Air Force pilot against the Nazis. Well, and there's a manhunt for Hitler at this point, too, because people know who he is. They're searching for him, and so he hangs out at this house for a couple days. Um, At one point, he says he's going to shoot himself or something when the um, authorities show up to arrest him, right? Mm -hmm. And he's going to shoot himself and... Um, Misha Stengel is like, Hap Stengel is like, no, what about your followers? You have so many people that need you and all this kind of stuff. And she said she goes up and she like took the gun away from him. Should have just let him do it. There you go. That would have cleaned up real, real nice. So guess what? Mrs. Hap Stengel, you're fucking in the... Egon. Egon Hap Stengel is the boy. And as they're leaving... Egon is like punching at the police's legs because yeah, don't fucking take my uncle yeah, Dolph, don't, you mean man and all this shit. Don't take uncle Dolph away from me. And to think that Hitler had some sort of a human side to be able to be like, Hey man, it's cool. I'm going for now. I'll be back. It's, it's the thing. It's the serial killer thing, man. He was always such a nice guy. He took his garbage cans yeah. out on time. Like his yard was always taken care of. Like we never suspected the thing to think of like, Hitler playing games with a five-year-old kid just doesn't It's like an adaptive measure to, like, act normal, to be, like, a normal person. Yeah. Ha, 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 (laughs) ha, ha. Nice kid. So he ends up getting arrested. He's charged for treason. So it's a capital offense. So the normal uh, sentence is to be hanged, right? Or in front of a firing squad. I thought it was guillotine. I thought that was just something he brought back. Maybe. But I know it's punishable by... Yeah, it's punishable by death. So he ends up going to court and defends himself. This is the most bullshit thing. And basically his strategy, he goes in wearing his fucking Iron Cross. And his strategy is he goes in and he's going to go ahead and take all the blame. But he basically turns this fucking courtroom into one of these beer halls. Well, and Von Carr is also the leader of the tribunal that's going to charge him. Mm -hmm. He's basically the judge for this case. So we know where Von Carr's sympathies already were prior to the pooch. Mm-hmm. So, and people are probably thinking like, this guy just tried to like abduct you and like, try to like, you're going to yeah. hammer this fucking guy. Yeah. And so, yeah, Hitler basically turns this into, you know, talking about he's doing this for the German people. He's only had the best intention of the German people. They deserve better than this. He's rallying against the treaty of Versailles, the unfair treatment, all this kind of shit. And in the course of this trial, this kind of gets like national German attention as far as this goes. So his name starts to basically be a little bit more recognized throughout Germany. Um, he becomes a hero to German nationalists. And instead of being given the life imprisonment or, or, you know, um, death sentence, what, what does he get? Five years. And 
the reason that he gets five years, and I wholeheartedly believe it, because he makes quite possibly one of the dumbest arguments that I've ever heard. But it was an argument that was so pointed towards the rest of his message. His main argument was that it would be physically impossible for him to commit treason against his government because his government in the Weimar Republic was a puppet government that didn't actually exist. So how can you commit treason against a government that shouldn't be in power anyway? Which is just the most... That's that's the thing to say when you're trying to like... You're not trying to prove a point that... <laughs> You're, you, what you're trying to do is make people think, like, does it exist? Yeah. Take the focus essentially off of what he was doing and everything like that and raise the question. Just planting that doubt in there and being like, oh, shit, like, does it? Like, how long has this thing been in? Yeah, it's still pretty new. Like, this was also part of the Treaty of Versailles. Like, this was the yeah. agreement for this government to be installed. So even at, you know, I do feel like this is a time of, like, desperation because he could just be lined up and shot if it doesn't go his way. But that's when, he, you know he kind of gets the sense during the trial that like he's going to get off lighter than he should. Well, and before he gets the sentence handed down, the people in the government are like, you guys have to find him guilty. Right. And they're like, I mean, I guess technically we do like not even, but he's doing it for the people. Yeah. This was a a very, like very blatant act of treason. Like 13 police officers died during this, this putsch. So it's not like he's, it's bloodless. Yeah, it was. I think it was sixteen Nazis. There were four police that were killed in the melee, and then there were more after that died from their wounds. But they, you again, just going to that point, like there has to be some sort of recourse for what happened. You just can't find him not guilty. Mm-hmm. He definitely committed treason, and if it wasn't treason, this melee that he caused killed police officers. Mm-hmm. Like we have to get this guy on something. Yes. So that's when they come back, and Von Carr goes ahead and hands him down five years. He says that he has, what is it, uh, two years before he's up for parole? Yeah. So, And then in private, doesn't he say something? Oh, what does he say fucking in private? He says something about like, oh, that's right. The judge, because he was a sympathizer, he said that it was a national deed. He called the putsch a national deed. <laughs> but the other thing, too, that kind of led to it as well, is so the trial was in a nationalist region. Treason, I guess, is an is a national charge, so it should have been done. I think I want to say in like another city that was less favorable to nationalists. Well, it probably should have been done in Berlin since it was against the the government. It should have been done in the capital. Well, it was it was done against in Munich. I don't think Munich was in Germany. It wasn't. Oh no, it was. Yeah. It, okay, that's right. Um, but yes, but for some reason it was held here. Um, he looked at the time he looked decent. Like he didn't look like what people would think of an extremist. They would think of somebody like crazy looking and stuff like that. Yeah. So he, no iron cross on their chest. (laughs) Exactly. Like a a war hero. Um, Somehow there were certain aspects of the events that happened during the putsch that were unable to be admissible as evidence or as charges. And they were some of the more serious shit. So that got tossed out. Probably the hearsay in the back room. Exactly. And Von Carr and everybody else that was a sympathizer not wanting to Maybe speak they had records it. about, you know, who knows if this was something that was just a wink-wink agreement and been like, listen, I know that I talked to you and you guys might have photos of me talking to you or something like that, but how about we do this and we, we get you out of here a little bit faster. And it wasn't just Hitler that was charged. Other people ended up going to, I don't even think you can consider it a prison because they were political prisoners. They got sent to this place called Landsberg Castle. 
but who didn't get charged? Oh, Goring. Goring. Well, Goring and... Uh, oh, fucking Ludendorff. <laughs> so while everyone is running after these fucking police start firing during the putsch, Ludendorff just fucking keeps walking toward the fucking police line, and all these guys know who General Ludendorff is from World War One. No one fucking fires at him. So he gets taken into custody... No handcuffs. No handcuffs. And then he ends up being released and just being sent to live somewhere. Yeah. Yep. They're just like, hey, just don't be around here anymore. And he's like, I guess. Come to court. We'll find you not guilty. We'll clear your name. You can go ahead and head off. Goring had been shot in the groin during the putsch, and he ended up like getting out and fleeing to Austria or somewhere in Italy. Uh, I want to say he was the one that went to Switzerland. Oh, yes, he? yes. He did go to Switzerland. Okay. You're right. So he ends up going to Switzerland. But... Yeah, he gets sent to Landsberg fucking prison, and this is basically like... You called it right the first time. It's not Landsberg prison, it's Landsberg castle. Yes, so political prisoners, they they still have this rule. So when you had like monarchies or like um, different... I'm trying to think of the word. When like a land... Aristocracies? Yes, like when it was done by a ruler. Yeah. And you took over another land, what you would do is it wasn't like fashionable to kill that other ruler. You would essentially put them under house arrest in their own fucking castle. They couldn't leave or go do anything. They still had this tradition for political prisoners. So Hitler and a bunch of his fucking like lackeys get sent to Landsberg prison. He gets a top floor cell, has double picture windows in it, bars on them. Of course he has like a writing desk, like a decent sized cell, full library, full library. He's able to keep books in his cell. He's able to receive a, at this point, because of the trial, he has like a huge following. This is something that I've been holding off on, not texting and talking about it Mm -hmm. because I just, I really wanted to see your face when we had this discussion. Uh, one of the other things that he got was Landsberg prisoners. Um, you would get one hour of visitation a week. He got six. Or, six a week. He would get six a day. Is that what it was? Yeah. So six a week, six a day. Um, he was like the Beatles. Like he had so many women that were just throwing themselves yeah. at him that they were sending like him all screaming. sorts of yeah confections, sweets. He just loved anything. what? What was it like? Uh, fuck what it. Poppy seed strudel or some shit. Could have been, yeah. He had women sending him enough to where he was getting fat and gaining weight <laughs> in prison. The guards were all sympathetic for him and everything like that. Um, I think some of them even called him like Fuhrer or some shit. He had guys that were part of the Nazi party. So he was being taken care of in prison. He wasn't doing anything. He didn't have to do any of the work, exercise, yard time, anything like that. He had guys lower in the Nazi party come up and clean his cell for him. Women that were following him were doing his laundry for him. There was a woman that used to bike from the nearest city. Four hours round trip. To the prison to see this guy on a bicycle. And that's that's what I wanted. I just, what do you think it was about him that made these women go crazy? Because he wasn't a fuck machine. He wasn't, like, he did Ted Bundy. But he wasn't handsome. Ted Bundy was handsome. I don't know what the standard of that shit, you know, it's, um... You know who Lyle Lovett is? Yeah. He was married or dating Julia Roberts. Really? Yes. There's something, like, it's it's the musician thing. Do you remember in uh, She's Out of Your League? They're doing the scale of, like, how hot you are, but if you have certain stuff, it can raise you up. Like, yeah. the guy's like, I'm a five. He's like, well, because I play guitar, I'm a seven. It's something about, like, fame and being able to capture a crowd. It Like, being almost a rock star that these women were just, like... I, I don't know. 
I, I don't get it, but I'm trying to like envision what type of mania that is and what's comparable, like what's comparable to it now. It's but like it's, Beatles mania, man. Those it, guys were ugly as sin, but every woman loved them. That's the thing. As soon as he got up on, and that's the thing. As soon as he got up on stage, maybe he wasn't looked at like a person. It was like the, the character or the presence that he was, that was so they said like, he was really like charming and everything like that, especially to women. He didn't make like sexual advances because these were all older women. We are going to get to that later. Yep. And he wouldn't be making like sexual advances, but he would just be, you know, great at conversation with them. They would be willing to do fucking anything for him. And so that's why you have like, he would sit there and read his fan mail to like during like their, prison Nazi meetings, he would sit there and read like his fan mail to like the fucking people that he had gathered around. It kind of makes you wonder too, if sort of these relationships that he was having, uh, Pootsie's wife was also very taken with him. Mm-hmm. Pootsie's wife was a real big fan. She actually wasn't her, her mother too. And then yeah. when her mother came in, she's like, you need to leave fucking Pootsie and run off with nice Mr. Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. It was that, that, that much of that, a- that, sentence when i heard that during the podcast nice mr hitler i think i had a result and i was like i don't think the combination of words i'm like there's just words that don't go together yeah. in any order and it's like nice mr hit like not that way that yeah but do you think that the kind of platonic friendships that he made with all these women were sort of like a motherly thing because he did really love his mother and she was sort of his protector and it sort of seems like I'm sure with the older women there was some type yeah, of like projection a of little that bit, onto them, which is very interesting because for a guy that was so tied up in Sigmund Freud, who ends up running away from his country mm-hmm. because of Hitler, along with Einstein and plenty of other mm-hmm. people, but his prison cell they said looked like a library yeah. because he had so many books in there that he was reading. He was reading Nietzsche, he was reading Freud, like we said, he was reading a lot up on. Uh, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, all this kind of different stuff. And it shapes his mind. I think that this little stay in Landsberg is the reason that Hitler was the guy that he was because he has this great awakening to where he realizes, oh shit, I tried to do this the bullish way to get into this and it didn't work. How do I do it? Well, I didn't want to play by the rules before. he He saw two putches fail. Yeah. The first time he told himself that one was just wasn't done the correct way. Wasn't me. He he did it the second time. He's like, okay, shit, maybe this just doesn't work. So it's he, not what it is who leads it. It's just so he's like, okay, well, I gotta try to find a different avenue. Yeah. I'm not giving up this shit. Like this shit's gonna happen, so I gotta find a different avenue. And this is when he also has like his first contact with Joseph Goebbels. And mm-hmm. Joseph Goebbels, I think, was part of like the northern portion of their party. He went, I think, with Schles- Schles- the Otto and his brother. Strasser. Strasser, yeah. Yeah, and so he writes to Hitler, and he's like, you have like a silver tongue, or you have a tongue that speaks for the struggle of all German people or some shit. So he was already a fan. College-educated guy, very, very film, smart. He went to film school. He was like a, he went to film school, so that's why he ends up becoming like the, the propaganda minister, because he knows all that shit. Other part about Putzi that we didn't mention, uh, Harvard graduate. yeah. So you have sort of these guys that are blurring the lines, and I find it a little bit amusing that a lot of what these guys were saying, like, hey, man, if you want to be a ruler, and this was maybe later on, they're like, go travel abroad, go see some shit. Mm -hmm. For Hitler being the strong-willed man that he was and so tough, Hitler was shit at flying, he was terrible on boats, 
And he would just travel by train mostly because he would get motion sick any other way. So he never went out to all these different countries and saw all these different governments and how they ruled. The be- first time he left the country and went somewhere what would be considered international outside yeah. of what was considered like a German territory was when he went to Italy to meet Mussolini. Mm-hmm. It's just a very weird thing to think that he was so encapsulated in his world. Or wait, Vienna, Austria. Well, I can't remember is that really it was. international? It's Austria. No, but I want to say that he. Maybe he'd never traveled out of the country. He went down and visited Mussolini yeah, at some point. I think that a, was the first time that he was out of the country. That was that odd odd bedfellows kind of thing that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. was their first meeting. We'll talk about how just incredible that was. But his ideological shift from aggression to playing as close to the rules as possible to get what he wants. And he really just, for as good as he was at speaking, it was like he felt like he needed more. He needed that strength behind him. But his speaking got him through mm-hmm. on the non-aggressive side very well. So he decides essentially that he has to go through legitimate means or use what are perceived as legitimate means within the system in order to go ahead and gain power. And one of the things is he doesn't realize how long he realizes that parole could be available, you know, in a couple of years. But the biggest thing that can kill a movement like this in, in his mind was him being out of the public stagnation, eye. stagnation, everything, someone else rising up in, in its place. So, he ends up writing what will become Mein Kampf in prison. The first edition. The first edition. And in it, he basically lays out his entire plan for, you know, the German Empire and the Third Reich. One Germany, a uniting of all German heritage and German-speaking peoples, um, get rid of, like, all of the Jewish people, the undesirables, anyone that doesn't meet the classification of, like, a German, the Germanic people, the Aryan race... Um, it was again, something against like, um, his gripes against Russia and Bolshevism and communism. And then also against like France for the treaty of Versailles, um, revenge against them for essentially invasion, all that kind of shit. And it, I mean, it lays it out as a blueprint and there's some like, even in the book, there's just heinous shit and everything about how he considers like. Uh, what did they call them? The Untermensch, the subhumans and all that kind of stuff. He refers to like Slavic people like that and just anyone who is, and gypsies and all that kind of shit. And basically he doesn't write it, but he just dictates it and then it gets written down. He has people writing for him and taking down shit for him in prison. What do you think those guys were like? Like when he would say a line, you think they're like, Jesus Christ, man. You just hear the clicking stop. (laughs) And he's like, I do not hear the typing. (laughs) He's like, are you sure you want to write that, Mein Fury? And he's like, what did you say? Yeah, he just. I don't think there was a lot of questioning at this point. There couldn't have been a lot of questioning, but to be in a situation where you're having some of this shit dictated to you and you have to write it down, like it has to go through another brain to be processed, to be put down. And I wonder if he was so tight about what he was doing that he would go read over the manuscripts after they were written. Just to make sure that everything was in. I'm guessing it took a long time for him to put because I don't even want to imagine it's incoherent and it's fucking crazy as it is. Yeah, that's what made it into the book. I'm wondering if stuff got read over and he was like, I can't. Maybe I can't take that. Put that like there had to have been some even batshit crazier stuff in there. Well, and I think the the second volume that they put out, like the 800 later page on, fucking version. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of like maybe a cleanup of what had happened in the and first. Added one. a bunch of other shit. Yeah. Yep. So but 
this doesn't all this book does not get released while he's in prison for the simple reason that he comes up for parole rather fucking early. Well, and who does he have on his side that might be big in the publishing world? A little guy over in the United States called Hearst. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you listened to our first episode, you would understand our feelings about a man named William Randolph Hearst killing the marijuana industry. But this was also a guy who was reached out to on Eckhart's part because they had known each other. And Eckhart basically finds the publishing deal for Mein Kampf and uh, Mr. Hearst is involved. So from what they've, you know, reports coming out of the prison, the warden and all this stuff, Mr. Hitler is a model inmate. So October 6th, of the same year that he goes in the like supervisory court or whatever, they review his parole request. They reject it, but then they actually relent on December 19th. The Supreme court of Bavaria is the one that handed it down. Was it his pardon? Yeah. So this city state nation within Germany that he was trying to take out and trying to take control of to then go jump on him. The Bavarian Supreme Court was like, eh, he's probably served his time. I think it might be okay. <laughs> Just a, a wild change in such a short amount of time, because we're talking November 11th, 1923 is when he's arrested. Just when he's arrested on high treason. And he's out December 20th, 1924. So up to this point where we're at is that he has risen to the leader of the Nazi party. Then he has established and tried to pull off a putsch or a coup, a violent one, which should be life in prison. He serves less than a year. He ends up serving, I want to say like 264 days for fucking treason and he's let out. And now he has a plan in place in which he has, almost like a clear eyeline of how he's going to attain power at this point. And he has a plan in place on how he's going to go ahead and take those steps to do it. And so you heard about his release day, right? Oh yeah. So like he gets released and like the, his photographer is there when he's getting released. Heinrich, Heinrich Hoffman. And because essentially the (laughs) backdrop in the setting of him getting released from prison isn't, grandiose enough they actually then go drive and find like an old gothic archway and have him walk through it and snap pictures and everything like that you know the the fine art artist so even even his there's even theatricality and a publicity and propaganda to be made in you know in his release from prison well what's the grandest thing that a man who is sentenced to prison for a noble cause can do exactly like a hero coming out like a victor coming out of it And so I think what we'll probably end up doing is we've had you guys for two hours on this and we're probably about halfway through the actual rise. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and split this one up into two episodes. It turns out that uh, Hitler did a lot of shit. Hitler had quite a rise. And um, this is something where the amount of research that we did this week was just... an incredible amount more than I would say that I've ever done for an episode. Would you say the same? No one should be saturated this much Hitler. (laughs) No. Um, a lot of of showers this week. We did a lot of research for this. We put a lot of time into it and a lot of work into it. We want to do it justice and And I don't want to shortchange anything. Don't, don't miss out on the second episode because this is kind of where things really start to get crazy. So yeah, we will see you guys next week. Later. Peace.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically h i. All right, and if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.